fast rate, it starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, an airplane, Kima Shabi, not afraid. I have a hurricane. Listen to yourself, sir. World starts its own heat. I'm sure your own heat. Speed, all speed, run. No strength. The ladder starts tied with fear. Fight down. Hot wire in the fire. Representing seven games. Government for hire. Combat side. Left the west coming in. Hurry with your feet down your neck. Team by eight quarter. Battle trump dead or dog. Look at that low lane. Five. Then overflow. Population time and food. Take yourself, sir. World starts its own heat. Listen to you. Hardly. Dummy with the rapture and the river and the right. Right. They try to stand by the right. Right. Feeling pretty psyched. It's the end of the world as we know it. I know it. You know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. As we knew it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. The universe, that, that's not, the, we, we know from experimental evidence that is not the way the universe works. And if you go up, if you treat the universe that way, you will be kicked in the backside. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Great America Show. We are going to be chatting... Uh, the end of life as we know it with John Michael Greer a little bit later. But uh, first, as always, Graham, I eat my spam with a nose flute Dunlop. <laughs> How's it going, buddy? <laughs> I had a feeling when you figured that one out, you might say something. I'm doing good, but I don't think that's a fair description of, of our episode with John Michael Greer about the ending of life as we know it. I mean, I guess you could say that, but... I did. It's probably more about like you know peak, peak oil and our industrial age and coming to an end. He and, said I was going to make my living fucking chopping old skyscrapers apart, <laughs> trading the metal. <laughs> <laughs> that to me is the end of life, as I know it. Yeah, you're going to stop building and start tearing down. No, I think he's talking about that's that, that's a couple hundred years. Yeah, ago. that's some Mad Max shit. No? Yeah, yeah. Well, if if all signs are kind of pointing to that, like he's an interesting, in, interesting. Saudi, work. yeah. I wonder if Saudi Arabia is going to invade fucking Syria and then Russia's going to nuke them. Yeah, we'll get to, and you go to the Naked Hippie Library and figure it all out. Well, the U.S. would be pro that, I suppose. I mean, they pretend to be Saudi Arabia's ally, but I mean, really, if those oil fields got nuked, that would sure drop up the price of oil. They probably got nuke-proof oil rigs. They can go send robots into the fucking nuclear wasteland and still get the oil. I'm attracted to those uh, sustainable cities, like Jacques Fresco-style stuff, zeitgeist. I'm trying to get Fresco on the show. economy. Love, a, you know, a commune full of love. I've been talking to Roxanne Meadows about getting on the show. It's tough. Yeah, well, he's 100. To schedule because he's 100 yeah. next month. But we're working on it. Yeah. So in the next couple of weeks, we should hopefully get him. Yeah, that'd be cool. But who knows? Good. So, yeah, I mean. Once the, people do a little background on us, sometimes they break communication. Sometimes. Sometimes yeah. <laughs> they increase communication as well. Sometimes, yeah. yeah. Sometimes they sign up for a monthly fucking donation plan. That's true. We've had listeners listen. Um, or Don't guests me. listen, yeah. Listeners listen. Well so you think that this Jacques could have checked out our show and said, ah. No, I don't think so. I think he's fucking 100, and he fucking doesn't care about our show, really. Like, yeah. Well, maybe. When he checks his email again, he'll say, oh, yeah, maybe he'll come on. Or maybe he'll just... Who knows? Yeah. 
He's fucking three times my age. I don't know. I have no insight into how his mind works. Yeah, he's pretty bright still. He's very bright. Yeah, still. he seems yeah. pretty, uh, pretty uh, swift. I mean, I just watched him in the last Zeitgeist. Oh, did I mean, you? That just came out fucking a year or two. No, ago. no, yeah, it was a few years. Twenty twelve or something, twenty thirteen. Yeah, maybe twenty eleven or twenty ten. I think. I thought twenty eleven was addendum, <clears throat> and twenty thirteen uh, was no. Maybe it was 2011 was the last one. Which one was the last one called again? Moving Forward, I think. Moving Forward, that's right. I'm glad you got into that, man. I, I've been talking about that for a while, and I felt like I couldn't really connect with you on the zeitgeist I've level. seen all the zeitgeist. I don't think I'd seen the Moving Forward, but I'd seen the first two. Uh, really? Yeah. I watched I Am again the other day. Too. January, January 15th, 2011. Oh, so yeah. it's already five years old, Moving Forward. That's crazy. Isn't it? This Great America show is two and a half years old. Yeah, that's crazy. We're old news. Yeah, that's one of those movies that can just kind of change the way you look at the world, especially monetarily. Yeah, it's pretty fucked up. It really is pretty fucked up. How's your search for Peter Joseph going? Surprise jingle. Profound UFO quote of the week. Nice try, buddy. But I'm prepared. This is the quote. In 1950, I was attending a rather slow-moving broadcasting conference in Washington, D.C., and having some free time on my hands. I circulated around asking a few questions about flying saucers, which stirred up a hornet's nest. I found that the U.S. government had a highly classified project set up to study them. So I reasoned that with so much smoke, maybe I should look for the fire. That was Wilbert Smith, official director of the Canadian government's UFO investigation from 1950 to 1954. Hmm. That's like the Fox Mulder of the Canadian government in the 50s. I haven't seen any more of the X-Files. I can't wait to talk to you about it, buddy. You got to watch the last one. I haven't watched the fourth one. I can have you three finish more it off just so we can discuss it? It's pretty cool. Yeah, I'll get to it. Speaking of Jock Fresco and old guys and stuff and uh, transhumanist things. Hey, no spoilers. The UK guys don't even have, I think they've only got the first two episodes. So the people in the UK are still anxiously awaiting the shitty third episode. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we do have, I did see some Twitter talk about a possible UK Gramerica posse. Yeah, we got lots of support from the UK guys right now. Yeah, they've just been more and more pouring in. Got a couple t-shirts going to go out there. Yeah, so you guys should all fucking get together. I checked. It's not far. No place is far. I actually got a Twitter exchange where we, somebody from Australia, that. did you see that somebody yeah. from Australia sent us their coast-to-coast? Uh, and I was going to coast. guess you on that. Why did you put the path from all the way across Canada down through the States? I just did it automatically. All you I know. typed in the fucking Google was drive from fucking Tofino. Fuck you. <laughs> I put in drive from Tofino to... Gander. To St. John's. To St. John's. That was in the Newfoundland. Yeah. And a couple of people thought the NL might have been the Netherlands, but it's not. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. You can't drive to the Netherlands. You can't drive to the Never Never Neverland <laughs> from here. Oh. <laughs> <sighs> But yeah, so you, I think but it you was, could have pulled them out. It was like, seven, you could have pulled them out, but I fucking didn't. Who cares? It's faster to drive through the states. No, that's yeah, not why it's faster that. to go down to the states 
than it is to drive through Ontario. Is that what it is? It that what takes slows 24 down? hours to drive through Ontario. Is that what slows the whole thing down? Yeah. It was still 82 hour drive. Yeah. It was 7,750 kilometers. What, what did you start from? Tofino? Why did Tofino. you start way up there in Tofino and not Victoria? Because Victoria's on the fucking west side of the island, or the east side of the island, and Tofino's on the west side of the island. Well, yeah, you're right. There it is. 82 hours. Uh, and it goes down. I'm right. Yeah, mind you, Who would have fucking thought? <laughs> it gives you a couple options here. Okay, so go to the through Canada option. Oh, oh wow. Oh, yeah. You're not, no, Canada's way north. Yeah, I see what you mean. So go it's through. actually quite a bit north. What happens if you drive through Canada the whole time? Is that an option? I'm trying to make it work. Make go it so you go to okay, Thunder there Bay. Go. There we go, 86 hours. It's only an extra four hours. Oh, so yeah. stay in Canada if you're going to do that drive. Huh. 7,500 kilometers. Jesus. <laughs> so that's, that's like four days of solid driving. Yeah. Solid. Solid. Yeah. Okay, enough about maps and journeys and stuff. I challenge you to do it. I would like to bring up, well, I know people that have done that trip across Canada. Hitchhiked? Not, this, well, yeah, too, that too, but not straight four-hour drive. Why would you bother? Driving dark to the prairies. Just a marathon, stealing gas, running out of gas, turning around. So I've been I've been saving Jason's uh, synchro, synch- yeah, kind of synchro, yeah. I want a good score for my synchronicity. Graham reads it out, then Dara might give it to me. Hey, don't you please read it low? Yeah, yeah. Okay, first of all, Jason emailed about getting John Michael Greer on, right? And so Jason he, B. Jason B. I don't want a rating for synchronicity because I've I've summarized his um, his email. I've kind of just hacked it up a little bit and trying to, so to read the parts take... of it. So I don't want to take anything away from his lengthy email. Well, you're and gonna, synchronicity, so. and I'm gonna rate it. It's, and Jason, if you have a fucking issue, you can <laughs> take it up. Graham Acroamerica dot Graham Graham Acroamerica dot com. So, anyways, he he actually. Uh, anyways, yeah. As with you know, most synchronicities, context is everything, right? Mm-hmm. So he says it all began in back in two thousand five when I discovered psychedelic trance music and also became interested in conspiracies around the same time. I wonder if that's like Spongle. So he was in Turkey for the Soul Clips Psy Festival. That was one thing. And a synchronicity happened there. I'm not going to, I can't get into that one now. <laughs> I knew that jingle would come and have it. 
you're going to have a tough time rating that one. I told you not to rate it. It's not one to be rateable. I can't even fucking comprehend what happened. I don't even... Let me give you this summary. After he, got, after he left Rapa Nui, I have no idea what the fuck happened. He, uh, let me summarize, okay? He was going to side trans festivals, and I he started that. seeing rainbows. He saw mm-hmm. three yeah, rainbows yeah, yeah. at three side trans festivals. What happened after the And his whales. cat died in the middle of... Not a the star, chance. not his star cat, but the Ringo cat died in the middle of the eclipse. Okay. Same time as the eclipse. And then you said moon. <laughs> <laughs> well, the moon's part of the eclipse, right? Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. So you're just pointing that out? Huh. Well, if he keeps seeing rainbows at Transfest, maybe he's supposed to try uh, experimenting. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't come out of the closet? (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with that. What else you got? I got some feedback from the last couple episodes. I feel like poor Jason is just going to... We're going to have to (laughs) make it known to the time. (laughs) No. No, no. That was like such a... Beautiful disaster. It needs to be fucking shared with the world. No. What? Uh, what were we saying? Making out. What were we saying? I don't want to do that. Sixteen minutes. Up. No, I'm giving. Is it? Yeah. I have to go back from there. Back to where? To the start of the story. <laughs> <laughs> What are you going to do? Are we starting the story over? Yeah. So I wanted to say thanks to Jason B for getting, helping us get John Michael Greer on. He's, he started up this jewelry as, as well. Play the jingle. When do I play the jingle? Okay. Play the jingle. <laughs> I want a good score from a synchronicity Graham reads it out, then Daryl might give it to me Hey, don't you please read it low, yeah, yeah I never noticed that growl before (laughs) So I want to say thanks to Jason B for uh, getting in touch with us and actually helping us get John Michael Greer on as well or at least helping us as far as like pushing us towards doing it No, it was... um, he started up uh, some druidry practice as well in the UK, and he sent me a bunch of emails and some synchronicities here. Now, I tried to go over this, and I messed it up pretty bad, so I'm just yep. going to totally summarize this for everybody. Okay. And, I, and I don't want you to rate this because it's not fair because I'm totally summarizing his emails, but the gist of it is he ended up in a few different places, Turkey, Rapa Nui, which is Easter Island, Peru and actually in Wales at Psytrance festivals and he saw like three rainbows in in you know in interesting times. So it's kind of like a synchronicity of rainbows and Psytrance and sort of like I guess you could say awakening in in a lot of ways. But I don't want to try to go through the email again. No, because you really fucking train wrecked it. <laughs> I'm gonna leave a couple seconds of it in. Just no, the can't. train wreck. Part. No, I can't. Train wreck, yeah? yeah. Okay. 
So anyways, yeah, thanks for the emails, Jason. Um, I saw, I have a pretty crazy rainbow experience as well. I didn't cry over the double rainbow or anything like that, but I, I, I can see where he's coming from. He cried over the double rainbow? No, but you remember that, that viral double video? Double rainbows are his drum solos. Do you remember? No. <laughs> That's a good quote. Is it? Yeah, I like that. So yeah, anyways, thanks, Jason. I don't want to get too much uh, more into the details. Yeah. I appreciate the email and hope you like the I missed my joke. Hope you like the chat. I had a funny joke. You really, (laughs) you fucked me. What what joke did you, what what do you mean? About the rainbows and sidetrans. I can't tell it again. Well, Darren thinks you should come out of the closet if you're seeing so many rainbows. (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with that. (laughs) Jesus. You made it weird. All right. Next segment. Okay, I got some more feedback from our recent episodes. Do you want to hear about the owl or the or the ice? Ice spikes? Yeah. Ice spikes. So this is uh this is from Mark. He's like synchronicity rating request. This synchronicity? is how, and every once in a while I feel like listeners might get sick of hearing other listeners' synchronicities, but I'm still getting them and I like them and we're still gonna read them every once in a while. Yes. But we would like to hear trip reports and stuff like that as well. So even if like Jason wants to give us a trip report from, you know, Rapa Nui. Rapa Nui. Anyways, I just listened to episode 157 and I'm requesting the following rating from Darren. I was drinking a few virgin Cuba Libras at home last night I'm while listening to the show. It just so happened that as I started the episode, I was loading my ice tray in the fridge. <laughs> After listening to Ephraim describe the phenomenon of ice spikes, I went to check the freezer and I found two ice spikes. No. Yeah, I've never noticed them before. Huh. He says, boosters, directly related to the show, born and raised in Gander, Newfoundland, <laughs> referenced at the 30-minute mark on the show in the intro of the same episode. Take a Gander at you. Love the show. <laughs> no, we, remember we had that whole discussion about Gander, right? I forget. <laughs> that was the lookout, right? Where you go up yeah, Gander. Yeah. Go up Gander there. He says, love the show, Mark in Ottawa. He says, P.S. Gander history for dummies. Number one, airport created as the final refueling station for all American World War II planes located as far away from coastal views of Nazis while on a plateau. Number two, after the war, after the war Torn more town created adjacent to the airport. After the war, town created adjacent to the airport. All streets named after pilots. The civic holiday strongly links to aviation celebration. Currently peaked at a population of 11,000. The town has a significant number of businesses to service outport communities that commute into the town. I.e., in the 80s, there were 39 bars and nightclubs and 42 car dealerships. <laughs> In a town of 11,000. Nice. It reminds me of the Irish town I, I stayed at. It was like the, the pubs and bars That's all like red, over dear. the place. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, what else? On 9-11, Operation Yellow Ribbon had 38 planes arrive and were hosted by schools, hotels, churches, and residents. Gander was one of the primary airports chosen for the following two reasons. It has a wider runway than most airports because it was built for the B-52 bombers. And second... Its small population would reduce collateral damages if there was a bomb or further terrorist attacks 
i.e. we were considered statistically expendable. That's right, you guys are fucking uh, <laughs> fodder. The Gander Goose is held at the lookout for tourist viewing pleasure. And you think that's where Take a Gander comes from. Yeah. Yeah. All right, buddy. There you have it. I like it. You like it? So it turns out we're not ostracizing Newfies either because he likes the show. Remember we said that the Newfies weren't. Oh, yeah, right. We're going to quit listening. Seems like every time we think we're pissing someone off, we're actually. Yeah. Actually, getting feedback. Yeah. Maybe we should try pissing more people off then. Yeah, fucking. Um, so he wants a rating. And so we should have drove to Gander. Them. Exactly. Yeah. How far of a drive is it to Gander? Uh, I can do a quick search. So Wait, John to Gander to Calgary. I'm going to say. Sixty-six hours. <clears throat> it is. They probably Gander doesn't even come up on Google Maps. Yeah, it does. How much would you say? Sixty-six Fuck hours. Yeah, <laughs> you're looking at it. I'm not looking at anything. What? Sixty-six hours. Are you kidding me? And zero minutes. <laughs> no. Come on. You fucking looked it up before. I swear to fucking on my kids, I didn't. Look, I think 66 hours on the nose. <laughs> I'm psychic. I just did quick math. I figured it was about 17 hours from here to the Fino, so I took that off at 82. Yeah, but that's right on the nose. Like, it's not 66.15. <laughs> like, it tells you it'll do that. It's right on the nose, 66. That's pretty good. So when I took the 82 less 17, I came up with 65, and then 66 just sounded cooler. I could lower that down by dropping it through the States. To 65? No, actually it doesn't. Hmm. Anyways. Okay. So what does that count as? I don't know. That's that's well, adds to rating the rating is synchronicity. Right? <laughs> I fucking randomly guess the exact fucking drive time. Yeah, from here to there. I wonder if people think I cheated. Probably, but that's okay. You think I cheated. So. I did. I think you did, yeah. I thought <laughs> but you I swore on my kids. little tablet there. Or you got it on your phone, probably. No, I swore on my kids. All right. I trust good. you. So I think we'll give it. <laughs> 9.42. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's up like right up there. It was not close to that until I hit the sixty six. <laughs> I brought him from an eight point four two to a nine point four two. All right. So you're welcome. So uh, another Let's thing Let's try some other drives. Okay, I got one here. Okay. I got one here. Uh after the owl episode, we're still getting synchronicity of people like listening to the episode and then seeing owls. I mean that like could this. be the Volkswagen bug bug effect or whatever, but that's what it is. So this is from Randy, a fairly new listener. Give a shout out to Randy. Hope he's doing well. Hi, Randy. I was planning a trip to Calgary next weekend. There was a change in my work schedule that allowed me to come this weekend. I was excited to binge listen for the 17-hour trip back. I, I was got listening. some magnets. 
while you're in town. Yeah, check. Yeah, give me a shout when you're in town. I'll give you some magnets and a couple shirts. I was listening to the Owl Synchros after the Clellan show. I stopped to take a beautiful pic of BC. I was at a rest stop. I put my recycling garbage away in the cans and then noticed... The Where do you drive here from? Tofino? <clears throat> no. <laughs> I'm saying Tofino is exactly 17 hours away from Calgary. No, it's somewhere It's somewhere else in the northern northern BC. Tofino's actually on the island. Beautiful place. So he says... Uh, He's putting his recycling and garbage away in the cans and noticed the oil drain pan he had put in the box of the truck was full of water. I emptied it. Got back in to highway speed and the drain pan was blowing all over the, around the blocks. I pulled over the next approach around the corner to make sure it wouldn't fly out. And as I put the pan under the back seat of my truck, I turned to see this 20 feet behind me. LOL. Anyways, I'm going to enjoy the long drive back and get my Gramerica fixed. Love the show. Oh, and then he says, I want to meet up and grab a t-shirt when I'm home. Keep up the great work. So it was a picture of a, an owl statue on the back of a trailer. <laughs> right while he's listening to it. <coughs> Let's see. Oh, nice. See, that's tough. It was a two and a half hour long episode. But it drove by fucking 50 owls. Well, that would have made it even crazier. A, I don't know. It's, it's when it people don't made, see that would have made it a nine point four two instead of a six. It's when people don't see the owls very often, and then they listen to something about owls and see them. something's going on with owls. <laughs> Something does seem to be going on with owls. I will give you that. Something's up. I want to do some more drive quizzes. Well, maybe you could just guess guess the town he's coming from. Seventeen hours away. Prince George. I was going to say the same thing. Okay. Was that right? I don't know. I don't know. I can't <laughs> remember. <laughs> Hopefully we didn't just single him out. What are you doing over there? I'm checking Prince George to Calgary for you, buddy. <laughs> wow. I don't even want to tell you. Nine hours only. Son of a bitch. Yeah, we should do that. Oh, well. Maybe it's Prince Rupert. Maybe I bet Fort St. John. Maybe it's Dafino. No, I don't think so. No? 17 hours, Prince Rupert. Is it? Mm hmm. Perfect. There so if go. we just take enough guesses. Actually, it's 1732. I don't want to, you know. All right, buddy. That's about it, man. We'll save some other stuff for next show. Support the show. Yep. GoAmerica.ca slash support. Yep. Help us stay ad-free. Thanks to all the people that have supported. Yeah. We've got a bookshelf for yeah, books we got a here. Book Clean up the studio a little bit. we got some more magnets. Yeah. Yeah. So How check do people out. get magnets? $5 mm, donation? $5 donation or all new subscribers. Alrighty. So if you want magnets, let me know. Let Graham know. Donate and put it in the PayPal note. Send your cash. Send your spam. That's about it. Oh, yeah, we're thinking about getting a new uh, computer. So, yeah. You don't want to talk about that? Well, I don't know. I mean, we were just thinking about it because that's, that's our constraint that's now a, for sound, the, right? That's is our it, next. Is our eight, how old is that computer? Eight years. Eight years. <laughs> 
eight-year-old Mac. This is just the one it we still used runs to record. Well. I mean, we have a laptop in the studio yeah. as well, and and James donated a, a Skype dedicated little laptop here for us. But, runs a lot, but better. that's for the sound recording and everything. Right? That's the recording computer. Yeah. yeah. Which I mean, this little thing records now too, but I don't know. That's for backup. That's the backup. Yeah. Imagine we would have had that when we lost all those episodes. I know. And nice. Martin Blank's episode would have got released. Yeah. Anyway, check out grammarica.ca slash support. Check out grammarica.ca to spam gram to leave a voicemail. Uh, review the show wherever you can. Share the show wherever you can. Comment on the show. If you want to blog, let us know. Yeah, and keep us out of the ad advertisements. We don't want ads. We don't want so it's just listener supported strictly value for value 158 episodes thank you all everybody. free yeah and thanks you. for thanks for your support yeah thanks for listening thanks for putting this up with us and uh enjoy the chat with john michael greer that's yeah, a great chat great chat yeah a little depressing at times but all in all it's a fun one yeah John Michael Greer, who's one of our, our listeners' favorites, and we've uh, we, we tracked him down and we're having him on. I listened to a couple of his his books. He's written like thirty books. A lot of it centering to around Jason, actually. Jason yeah. would not leave me alone until we had John on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, uh, I've got a big email to read of Jason's one day as well. So uh, he's he's focused on a lot of stuff like um, the decline of our modern civilization and peak oil, and even oh. stuff like green wizardry. He is actually a Druid, Druid as well. He's the current head of the Druidical Order of the Golden Dawn, and he used to be Grand Archdruid of the Ancient Druid of Druids in America. He's got a lot of fascinating, fascinating stuff. I listened to a couple of his audiobooks, and they're definitely thought-provoking, so really happy to have you on here, John. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you know, you know what comes up for me um, right off the bat is because I was listening to your... Uh, I meant to actually read some of the titles of your books too, but the Ecotechnic Future was one that I listened to. I'm glad you had some of them on audiobook, and then also um, the Long Descent, I think, was the other one. But it's it's amazing to me how you were talking about a lot of stuff in the Ecotechnic Future about uh, migration and you know some of the politics and stuff like that. So I was kind of thinking, like, what what are you thinking nowadays? Like a few years after that book, and then we have. We have ISIS, we have this mass migration problem, and we don't usually talk uh -huh. about current events too much in, in America. Like, we usually kind of keep to the fringe. So, mm -hmm. but I mean, you must have a lot of <laughs> thoughts about what's going on with the political system and, and the global events. 
Well, actually, one of the things that I found most striking, I mean, anyone who makes predictions about the future, um, is, is it's a crapshoot no matter what, no matter what kind of basis you have. But so far, my predictions are coming up pretty much, pretty much ahead. I was, in fact, as, as you noted in the ecotactic future, saying, okay, look, we're facing mass migration. As the existing world order breaks down, as food and water start becoming scarce in various parts of the world, um, economic systems break down, all the usual nonsense, that's one of the things that happens. You get vast numbers of people migrating across the landscape, going anywhere they think they can survive. That's what's happening right now with people pouring out of the Middle East into Europe. Um, that's been happening, of course, for quite some time in the, in the United States, where you have lots of people coming out of Latin America looking for a better life for themselves. Mm. But, um, you know, it's, it's a complicated thing. But the thing is, these things always happen. One of, the thing, well, one of the things I think that blinds most people to what's actually sitting in front of their faces is this notion that it's different this time. You know, we're, we're different. We're special. We're Destiny's darlings. Um, we've progressed. And so none of that stuff that ever happened in the past, none of that counts. None of it could ever happen again. We, we get some really wonderful, new, exotic Hollywood future, or we all die horribly. It doesn't matter as long as it's different. I'm, I'm totally guilty of that. I'm totally because yeah, I because I because I was thinking like that's one of my main points here to talk to you about is is you you go into the historic cycles a lot of of the decline and rise of empires and about uh, civilizations crashing and falling and and I do I have the sense that we're different like I have the we're sense different. that like that with the internet with our with our you know awareness of what's going on like we must be different with the technological advances exactly every the thing is you've been taught that you've had that pounded into your head over and over again since you were old enough to absorb language. It's one of the most pervasive things in our, in our collective culture, in our collective imagination. Everybody, the media is yelling it at you all the time. So getting out from under that mindset, out from under that programming, is a hugely important as well as a hugely difficult step. Hmm. So do, do you not think that the internet has been a game changer though? Like compared to any no. other time in, any other no. time in the world, like we are, no. we are totally connected now. No, we're not. We just, no, what, what happens now is, well, let's, let's talk about it this way. What does the Internet do that people weren't doing before the Internet was around? We send messages to people. We used to use the post office for that. Um, we look up facts. Well, there are things called encyclopedias and libraries. Um, we send kitten pictures to our friends. There were various ways of doing that. Uh, we send anonymous hate messages. That was, those were called poison pen letters back in the day. Or, or there were people who did that on the phone also. And obscene phone calls. Oh, yeah. Um, there's almost nothing that the Internet actually does. I mean, by getting pictures of people with their clothes off. You know, the corner porn pornography store for that. The Internet doesn't actually do anything new. It just means that we do it sitting in the same place, staring at a glass screen. Doesn't it accelerate going, our? Doesn't it accelerate our, our our connection ability to like-minded people, though? Like, for example, people listening to the show, or people that we're in contact with that we never would have been able to get in contact with. People, except that's that's simply not true. Before the internet was around, we had um, this galaxy of special-purpose magazines and newsletters yeah. that served exactly the same places web function as web pages and blogs. Uh -huh. It's just that now we now we have we we get there with a click, rather than getting there by you know walking down to the corner newsstand. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've been doing in, in the course of researching a, a very different project of mine is reading old um, 
copies, old issues of Weird Tales magazine, which is a very famous pulp magazine. Mm-hmm. It's where H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard and some of these old classic fantasy writers originally had their stories published. And in the back is, a, is the letters to the editor com- column. And it's exactly like the comments page on a, on, on a blog. People are carrying on these lively conversations. They're getting in touch with each other. You know, people who are interested in tentacled horrors from three weeks before the dawn of time are a specialized audience. So they all went out and bought Weird Tales every month. And that's how they stayed in touch. It was a little slower. That's the only difference. Yeah. But the hype that surrounds the Internet, that's its main product. The Internet, as I said, the Internet doesn't actually do much that's new, except that it generates a hype insisting that, oh, it's completely new. Nothing like this has ever happened before. We're special. We're unique. We're connected. We're sitting, staring at screens, tapping buttons on a keyboard or wiggling a mouse around. That's what we're actually doing. That's what we're connected to, a mouse and a glass screen. And so, you know, I I use the internet. Um, that's what's available. If there were still, uh, if Weird Tales were still in print, if um, you know, if the, all the kinds of specialist specialty magazines and newsletters were still out there, I'd be publishing there. Wouldn't make a bit of difference to me. Yeah, you you do have quite a following on your blog, right? I mean, that's uh, you have. <laughs> used, I mean, if I yeah. forgot to mention that in the intro too, you do like a weekly blog, and you've got a, a ton of people reading that. Yeah, um, I have a weekly blog called the Archdruid Report. If you just if you Google the word Archdruid, here's that instant click thing, right? Um, you'll get it on the first page. Um, yeah, it gets about a quarter million readers a month. Wow. And yeah, it's, which is which, I still find completely bizarre because I started. <laughs> I don't advertise it. Um, I don't really monetize it. It's it's not optimized for search engines or anything like that. It's just I've been publishing weekly um, commentaries since about two thousand since May of two thousand six. You're touching on some pretty yeah. hot topics, though, right? You're really you're, oh, yeah. really, you're really digging into uh, mm-hmm. you know our cultural uh, yeah. problems here with with resources and especially all the peak oil stuff. I mean. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, that's one of the reasons that I'm so amazed that it has the following it does, because most people don't want to hear about that. Most people want to hear about, you know, how we're all going to have driverless cars and, and, and jetpacks, <laughs> and we're going to commute by helicopter, or, you know, all this kind of nonsense, helium from the moon. Um, the most the, the most preposterous, the, the sort of thing that would have been rejected by the editors of Weird Tales with a rubber stamp saying, this is completely <laughs> preposterous, come on. Tentacle horrors we can handle, but, the, you know, per, perpetual progress zooming off, uh, producing an endless hacker culture into eternity, come on. On. So, um, but for some reason, yeah, it's it's picked up a following. And uh, how did it? Uh, how did you first get into this? Is this like a, a like a, you're talking about the magazine there from from back in the day? Has this been a lifelong passion? Like, when did you first kind of figure out it was all like a gimmick? Like. I kind of liken okay. it to when you first realize that there's like yeah. Rogan talks about all the time when you first realize that there's not really a- any adults, you know, like when you're a kid, you always assume <laughs> you're just going to grow up That's and good, one day yeah. you're going to be like, bam, and you're going to have it all figured out. But it's really just a bunch of fucking kids running around that grew up. Exactly. You you just realize that they're just larger and hairier. They are not any smarter than you are. Exactly. Um, in my case, it was kind of complex. Partly it was growing up in the 70s. I was born in 62. So, graduated from high school in 1980. And growing up in the 70s, back then you could talk about the limits to growth. People did. 
people talked about um, the various problems that society was facing, the limits, limitations of resources, limitations of how much pollution the planet could take. That was stuff you see. People didn't run away from it in those days. Hmm. Um, then came, of course, the Reagan counter-revolution. It's warning in America. Have you ever noticed, I, I don't know if either of you recall an old Saturday morning cartoon which had Lippy the Lion and Hardy Har Har, who was this perpetually dys- dyspeptic, depressed hyena. Yeah. Okay. You remember those? Ronald Reagan, to me, always sounded exactly like Lippy the Lion. <laughs> oh, there's no problem, Hardy Har Har. Let's just go charge ahead and invade Nicaragua. You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, then, and then George Bush Sr. had this very Hardy Har Har. I don't know, Ronnie. That doesn't sound like a good thing. It was really... <clears throat> but I, I digress. <laughs> but so we had the Reagan counter-revolution, and most people at that time in America and elsewhere chucked their ethics. And that kind of reminds me of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Yeah, that would be like the there. Canadian equivalent. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> but people, they, you know, a lot of people who've been taught, who've been trying to nerve themselves up to dealing with actually facing up to the limits to growth, accepting um, a steady state economy, um, less energy, less funky toys, basically sold out the future. And we're still dealing with the consequences. I was one of the people who didn't. Now I don't know if that if that just says that I was I was slower on the uptake than anyone else. But I was involved in appropriate technology. I was involved in ecology and all this kind of stuff. And I stuck with it at a time when most people didn't. And at that time I was also getting very interested in history. And it was let's see. It was really toward the end of the nineteen eighties. My studies of history, I, I finally started getting this sense, hold it, there are repeating patterns here. This is not the sort of straight line march from the caves to the stars that the that you know Carl Sagan at all likes to portray. Um, this is a cycle. And of course, then I found, you know, being, being somewhat slow on the uptake, it took me that long to actually start looking for the major writers about historical cycles, Arnold Toynbee, um, Oswald Spengler, um, John Civico, originally back in the back in the seventeenth century, who pointed out that civilizations have a life cycle. Mm-hmm. You know, they're born, they go through their childhood, they go through adolescence, they they get into trouble, they they do as much growing up as they're going to do, and then they gradually get senile, and then they get old and die. And it's a predictable cycle. It it you know it just it follows these normal stages. You can track it point by point. And if you, once you start once you start looking at things that way, and you start looking at where we are as a civilization, and what kind of steps we've gone through, and what we can expect from here on in, it's pretty clear that we're not looking at that you know, grandiose onward march of progress forever. We are in a lot of trouble, and it's self-induced trouble. We've made the problems that are uh, that are currently threatening to swallow up Western industrial civilization, and so. You know, once you know, once you recognize that, once you see that, oh, that's right, the Romans were here and they fell, and the Egyptians were here and they fell, and, and the Babylonians and the Mayans, and we can just keep, we can keep on going for some time now. As a you know, this is familiar stuff. Even even though now it's it's inter- multinational corporations other than <clears throat> governments for the main part. Like I know that you focus on, you know, U.S. On, in politics in a lot of your books and, and the U.S. culture. But do you see it spanning more of a connected sort of multinational corporate elite that are sort of uh, leading us down this well, path? 
thing is that that's that's also very common. Um, at in the in the last tar, in the last part of the Roman Republic, for example, um, the the political institutions of the Republic were basically puppets of the ver- of of a class of very very rich people. Okay, that's it's normal. That's the problem with democracy, I think, right? Like, yeah, Oswald Spengler talks about that. Democracy always turns into a shell around plutocracy. And then what happens is you start getting um, demagogues, you start getting charismatic leaders who rally the people around them, mm. use that force to overthrow the plutocrats and impose the dictatorship. Um, you can call that person Augustus Caesar. You can call that person, well, we could go into some recent names, but um, <laughs> Spengler argued, he was writing in 1918, he argued that, we, that he, Europe and, and the Western world generally were on the brink of the age of charismatic dictators who would fight the plutocrats and lose and fight the plutocrats and lose and fight the plutocrats and lose and win. <clears throat> and of course, while he was writing this, there was a, you know, a young um, World War I vet named Adolf Hitler, not that far from where he was living, who was starting that process underway. Yeah. Um, exactly who will be, I mean, we've been through a couple rounds now, exactly who will be the, who will lead the next round of charismatic, um, whatchamacallits, is a good question. I've heard people suggest Donald Trump as a possible name. Certainly, yeah, certainly he's tapping into the thing that the plutocrats can't deal with, which is the fact that their behavior is screwing over most people. Yeah. It seems like from both sides, right? I mean, Sanders seems to be right there, too. Yeah, Sanders, I think think Trump was saying something just uh, like yesterday or today, that the the, the one place where he agrees with Sanders is that they both acknowledge that people are getting screwed. And that nobody else is willing to say that. Hillary Clinton certainly isn't. I mean, she never met a a billionaire she didn't like. (laughs) So do you think that that's... By design, or do you think that these guys are sincere? Oh, I, I think Bernie Sanders is probably sincere. Donald Trump obviously wants power, and he will probably get it. I, I commented around the, uh, about a month, a little over a month ago now, that I think the most likely outcome of this election season is is a Trump presidency. We'll see what happens. But the thing is, a desire for power doesn't necessarily exclude somebody from looking at a situation saying, okay, here are a lot of people who want somebody to speak for them. So, you know, well, yeah, I don't it's know almost what... like that ego like that can play off as like, I mean, how do you go into the history books? You've got to really fucking shake it up, right? If you can be the yeah. guy that really gave things back to the people, then, you know, your fucking yeah. statue is in front yeah, of exa- Exactly. Exactly. Trump could be looking at this and just, yeah, with this warm glow of self-satisfaction, imagining the Trump monument in Washington, D.C. <laughs> 50 years from now. <laughs> You don't know. Um, or he could, you know, he could be just in it for himself, and then as soon as he gets into power, he'll sell out the people. These things happen. What Spengler was saying is, you know, you go through all this turmoil and, and so on, and eventually the plutocrats lose because their power depends purely on money, and money is just a set of tokens. It's not wealth. It's not actually anything real. It's just a game. And so, event, but the plutocrats become so caught up in a particular system of financial exploitation that that system can be undercut. Their 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 wealth and power collapse. Imagine, for example, what would ha- what would happen with America's current you know top top end elite if some dictator were to take power in the United States and nationalize the banking system. <laughs> yeah, they'd be toast. Yeah, 
all their power would go away in, in you know, the moment that pen was signed, gone. And that's exactly what happens to the plutocrats because they don't actually have, their, their power is always a matter of manipulating institutions. Hmm. And so the charismatic dictators can always just shove them aside. Hmm. Yeah, it really and is interesting one, the way he's, yeah. he's shattering the paradigm right now that, that's kind of out there. And, but, but, uh, both yeah. of them are, really. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, again, this is the way it always happens. Hmm. Familiarize yourself with history. There are not that many surprises. Hmm. So getting back to the 70s a little bit there, where you're sure. talking about how you grew up and you guys were talking about the limits of growth and, mm-hmm. and all these things. So when did it actually change and, and what, what, what drew us uh, as a society away from talking about that? I mean, I know obviously the corporations and, and the media had a big part of it, but is there anything specific you can think of that uh, turned the tide? I, I, or? Really... It's complicated, but if I had to put a specific moment, I'd say the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. Because the the thing that most people don't remember is that until the Reagan administration, the Republicans had as good a record in environmental issues as the Democrats, and some was a better one. Hmm. Um, The Nixon administration signed the Clean Air Act and the Endangered Species Act, and the Nixon administration actually pushed for those. Um, Theodore Roosevelt, who was another Republican president, founded the National Park System. But what happened, now now Reagan himself was a washed-up old movie actor. That's all he was. But the group of people who used him looked at this and said, you know, I bet that the American people, if we tell the American people, no, no, you don't have to do the austerity thing, we don't have to draw back, we don't have to um, sacrifice today to give our children a better, better lives in the future, no, 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 it's morning in America, we can have everything we want, greed is good, you know, party hardy, baby, that mm. they'd fall for it. And that's basically what they did. And... I don't think the American people had to fall for it. It's ha- it has happened in the past, tolerably often, that you know pe- people in various countries faced with that kind of challenge have risen to the challenge, have said, no, we're going to do what's right even though it hurts. I think Britain's a but good example not- of that, right? Excuse me? Is Britain a good example of that? Yeah, d- yeah think, of, think of in the Second World War. Or, I mean, there, there are hundreds of examples in history. America, you know, in the, when, when after Pearl Harbor... Americans accepted stringent rationing of food, of energy, of gasoline. There were no new cars and no new appliances made in the United States until after the war was over. And people just accepted that because, of course, you know, we've got to defend ourselves. We've got to defend freedom from, from, from the Nazis. And that kind of, people do that kind of thing all the time, but we didn't in the 1980s. We crumpled. <clears throat> and that moral collapse remained... I, I, I watch people, especially people who were around at that time, people who sold out, people who, or, or people who kind of temporized and bargained and said, well, you know, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to accept the corporate job and I'm going to get that big car and I'm going to buy into the whole thing, but I'm going to donate a little money to the Friends of the Earth. But if you poke them on that issue, you get all kinds of excuses. Well, well, we couldn't have done anything else. There was no way we could have gone ahead. And that's why I think it was possible. That's why I think we could have risen to that challenge, because it is still a sore issue even today. Mm. And if you poke that issue, and it's something that I poke regularly on the Arch Druid Report, people will get acutely uncomfortable. Some of them will start screaming at you because... <laughs> You know, you know, seriously, people, a lot of people who are around then, a lot of people, a lot of the boomers and so on, they know that they sold their grandchildren's future for the sake of, you know, 
20 years of high living. It's hard to blame them in some ways. We're brainwashed, and we still are getting brainwashed by the mainstream media. Yeah. I mean, really, if you pay attention yeah. to, mm-hmm. to the oh, news and all the ads, it's pretty disgusting. But the facet, there's, the thing is, there's a feedback loop there. Have you noticed the, the corporations will come out, for example, with big, hot new products, that, which are heavily advertised, and they bomb. Sometimes the they come out with products. Yeah, you know? Yeah, exactly. Somebody sinks how many bil- how many millions of dollars into a movie, and people go, meh. <laughs> because there's this kind of feedback loop between the, the, the masses and the media. The, mass, the media feeds the masses what it wants the masses to, to take, but the masses also have a, the masses have a choice in the matter, and it doesn't always work. <laughs> so, brain, and so what happens is, on the one hand, the media is trying to make the, the masses behave, but on the other hand, the media has to adapt to what the masses are willing to want. Back in the, I mean, here, here's, think about the pop culture shifts right around the 1980s. We went from John Boy Walton and John Denver. Do you remember, do you remember those? <laughs> You know, the big round granny glasses and dogs with bandanas and, and very, you know, the sort of fresh-faced innocence, um, back-to-the-landy kind of thing. And all of a sudden, it's Madonna and Gordon Gecko and greed is good. Wham. That's another way you can watch the shift in consciousness at that time, the, the, the moral collapse of, of, of the United States. Most people in the United States just deciding, okay... We're going to sell out. We're going to convince ourselves that greed is good. Screw these, you know. Screw the environment. Um, screw the underprivileged. I've got mine, Jack. And and repeating that to themselves, and and patronizing the movies and everything else that fed that, because that allowed them to ignore, you know, the face that was looking out of the mirror. And there was some financial and banking changes as well that contributed to that, right? I know in Canada oh, in yeah. the seventies, we we got away from our own own money and started borrowing from the bank i mean i know yeah. you know america has a longer history from that but yeah. wasn't there the some of the acts that were destroyed during i don't know was it clinton's presidency or whatever where they oh, yeah. Get, you yeah. know, i mean that very, i'm sure that very, kind of accelerated the whole problem very much so very much so yeah clinton that we had we had an act we had a um i say law um, in the United States, the Glass-Steagall Act, yeah, yeah. which was which basically was an ironclad wall between investment banking and consumer banking. So the banks that provided, you know, banking, checking accounts, and savings accounts, consumers could not take that money and play ga- and gamble within the stock market. It was a good law. It was a law that was put in place in the Great Depression as a result of what happened in the run-up to the, the Great '29 crash. Mm-hmm. And as soon as Clinton took it down. We went right back into the same cycle of stock market boom, stock market crash yeah. that had been stopped cold by that law. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, and of course, similar things were done in most other countries. And so we end up with the, this sort of um, Las Vegas approach to banking. Yeah, that we've like got hundreds today. of trillions in the, in the yeah, derivatives. Exactly. Like, that's just mind-blowing. Oh, it's, it's mad. It's absolutely mad. Um, yeah, and, and you get situations, the, the, the banking situation right now in Europe especially, of dozens of European banks threw just obscene amounts of money into the fracking boom here in the United States, hmm. which was a Ponzi scheme. I thought I just, I thought I just saw something about, uh, did you see that, that on Twitter, Dan? A Ponzi scheme, like just drive up the price of oil so that fracking becomes profitable and it's, it's that well it, it was more complex than that but yes that was part of it the thing is when you frack 
a, a when, when you when you frack a well, okay, you do the hydrofracturing thing, you get this rush of oil. You get a bunch of oil. It looks really good, then drops off like production drops off like a rock. So when you first start fracking things, it looks like you've got all this new oil, and you had all the yelling about Saudi America and that kind of crap a few years ago when everyone was talking about how fracking was going to make America energy independent again. It was a Ponzi scheme. Basically, they used that initial glut of oil to get more credit, to get more investors, to get banks to buy lots of paper, except then, of course, the oil started, you know, all the wells started drying up as they did, as they are doing right now. And all of a sudden, you can't pay the interest on those loans, you can't cover the cost of the commercial paper, and you've got, you know, what, a couple of dozen European banks, among others, who are up to their eyeballs in fracking-related loans that will never be paid off, hmm. and commercial paper that is worth the toilet paper it's printed on. So they got they got suckered, and unfortunately, you know, well, fortunately, unfortunately, unfortunately for them, um, many of the several of them are either going to have to be bailed out by the government or they're going to go broke. Hmm. Didn't it? Wasn't it Iceland that just uh, did something with their banking system there? Yeah, they just threw them out of jail. Yeah. That, they they did the one, oh, the allegedly. one country in the world that did the right thing. <laughs> yeah. They tried their no, they tried their bankers for fraud, found them guilty, threw them in jail. They refused to bail to bail them out, and Iceland's fine now. I think they everywhere forgave else in everyone's Europe, mortgages they, too, yeah. right? Exactly. And they, everywhere else in Europe, no, 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 we've got to bail out the bankers, and they're in a state of Europe is a financial basket case today. And Iceland is like climbing the ranks, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's and, fucking you know, cold. It's all it, 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 well, it is cold, but hey, you know. Mind you, it's cold here too. <laughs> I can say you can get used to that. Um, the, thing, the one of the things that I find funniest is that you know the the, the capitalist types, the oh, you know, the the market is is all powerful. They go on endlessly about the discipline of the market and how you know there's got to be capitals that have to have creative destruction but when it comes to their pocketbooks oh man they want those government handouts yeah 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 america is america is full of welfare queens but they're not people living in the inner city they're in corner offices <laughs> okay no we have corporate we are full of corporate welfare queens big business big banking who are right there sucking on the government kit but when when are we going to wake up to the, the the money being loaned all the nations through usury and all that? Like it seems like there's more more and more people talking about it, but there's never really mm-hmm. much uh, I don't know much in the mainstream about it. Like there's only a few nations that aren't really part of the central banking system, right? Yeah, exactly. No, the the thing is that's that that is the core of, of what Spengler referred to as the plutocracy. Oh. And so no, people do not talk about it because. You know, um, well, lending at interest. Yeah. yeah, lending at interest is, para- is you know, it's the act of a parasite. That's all it is. But that's like one of the core problems that I see. Like it's, it's, when, exactly. you, when you start looking at the higher up, the higher up view, like that seems to me mm-hmm. that that's creating a lot of the problems that we have. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, there is a reason why both the world religions that came out of the post-Roman world treated lending at interest as a mortal sin. <laughs> Islam and Christianity. I mean, the Christians got rid of it in the 14th century, but if you read Dante's Inferno, which it's it's a good read anyway, but you'll find out that according to Dante, people who lend money at interest are further down in hell than mass murderers, heretics, and fallen angels. 
They are at the bottom of the seventh circle of hell. That's where they fry. And so you, you get the idea that people in the Middle Ages remembered, because Rome, the Roman world, had this immense money lending thing. They had the same kind of crap, and it was just as destructive then as it is now. Again, follow your history. And so, the, you know, the Christian church and the, the, the Muslims, you know, they, they both, both of these major religions took a hard look at lending an interest and said, no, this is sin. This is evil. This is this is parasitizing people who actually make something, do something productive for a living. You know, it's it's you're behaving like a blood sucking leech. It is a it is a mortal sin. You will fry in hell forever. And oh, by the way, we're probably going to chop your head off anyway, so you'll have to deal with that slightly sooner. <laughs> now and for digitally. many many years, this Those was the guys this we was laugh the at thing. in the third circle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things. Um, Lending interest is a really bad idea. Among other things, it it only works or it only seems to work for a while when you have an expanding economy. And you only have an expanding economy if you've got steadily increasing amounts of resources coming coming into your society. In a global economy, well, you know, we've all seen pictures. The world is a sphere. It is not flat. We're not importing any significant amount of wealth from Neptune, nor will we ever. So... As you hit the limits of the global economy, you then reach the point where there's no room for growth. And at that point, running an interest becomes lethal. It becomes a disease. Right. And then, well, it's not um, even like the profits, the profit machines generated by these corporations. Like that's, I mean, Mm -hmm. that, that fits right in there too. Just because they're, Mm -hmm. they're supposed to make money every month. That's their bottom line. And, yeah. Fucking nothing else matters. So it's just go, go, go. Like, it's like a, our entire fucking thing is based on we have to keep growing. And it's yeah. like we could just yeah. we could just stop yeah. now and just yeah, be good exactly. with everything. Be- because and still system- have an iPad and the internet. No, that's, no there's your problem. <laughs> no. Um, but, no, the, yeah, the system requires growth. It, I mean, the economic system we have now came into existence during a 300-year period when human beings were breaking into the, the planet's cookie jar of fossil carbon. <laughs> and so we, had, we, basically, we basically broke into the kitty and we burnt through it in three centuries. Just a party-hardy man, the biggest joyride in the history of the planet. And the problem we're running into now is that it's over. You know, we've exhausted the cheap fossil fuels on the planet, and everything that's left isn't cheap. It's harder to extract. It's costlier. You have to put more energy into it. You have to put more materials into it. So the costs of extraction are soaring. The amount's kind of stumbling along, not really maintaining itself. And you've basically got um, certain very tender portions of the global economy's anatomy caught between the two um, jaws of a vise, and they are clamping shut. So what what happened to the to the peak oil thing about about ten years ago? I remember hearing a lot about it mm-hmm. in the mainstream, and then it sort of disappeared for a while. I know it got it, it got shoved under the rug. What? Okay, here basically what happened the the, the peak. I, I mean, the peak oil thing had been up again and had had been out in the seventies. People were talking about it all the time, right. and then it got shoved under the rug like everything else in yeah. the Reagan years. And then in the late nineties, yeah. and I, I was around, I was I was involved in this. Um, a number of us started no, looking at the latest stats that were coming out of the, basically the mismatch between how much oil was being pumped out every year and how much how many new oil fields were being discovered every year. 
Mm-hmm. And at that time, um, it was about four to one, four barrels being pumped for every one new barrel being discovered. And so obviously there was some talk, you know, this could be a problem. Right. So what happened as soon as, as, soon as it, it, it got through, you know, it started becoming widespread. People started talking about it. You started getting these frantic attempts to cover it up. And the first one of those was, was biofuels, ethanol, biodiesel. There was this big hoopla around those, except that didn't work very well. It, the, econ- the economics were really bad. Um, it, most biofuels um, companies could never even make, never make a profit. And so they crashed and burned. And then we had another round of peak oil talk, and it got into the media. And then it was fracking. Oh, no, no, fracking is going, we're going to Saudi America. We're going to have all the oil we want, blah, blah, blah. Now that's blowing up. Once what about again, what about ethanol though? Because it hasn't. Yeah. I thought I just was watching a documentary the other day that Brazil has like mm-hmm. successfully almost switched over. I think it's over fifty percent or something like Bra- that. Brazil can do that because Brazil produces a very large percentage of the sugar in the world, and what they do is they take the waste sugar cane and they yeah, ferment yeah, it. That's right. That's exactly okay. how they're doing it. Now, could, exactly. could we do that no. with something like corn instead of uh, putting sure. it in fucking but- everything else? You see, no, that's 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 being done. Let me let me let me. What what's going on here with Brazil is a special situation because the Brazilians are also selling the sugar. So, and the cost of the or the price they get, the income they get from the sugar actually pays for the cost of growing the thing. So it's basically they're taking a free waste product and turning it into into, al- into ethanol. And yeah, that's economically viable. Now, in terms of corn, first of all, there's a, you get a lot less alcohol out of the corn. Now, you can do it. I mean, I, I, I live in the, in the north central Appalachians, and I can tell you for a fact there are people um, that I know who make their own moonshine liquor out of corn, and it's very potent stuff. You can make it at a small level and get good results. But corn has a lot, you know, alcohol comes, you ferment sugars into alcohol, right? Corn has a lot less sugar in it than sugarcane does. And it's not a waste product. You actually have to grow the stuff. And what comes out the other end, other than the ethanol, you know, you can feed some of it to hogs, but that's about it. It's not worth that much. And But there's another problem which, which with corn, which is that if you grow your corn in the ordinary North American fashion with the combines and the pesticides and all this kind of stuff, and you process it in the usual industrial manner to make it into ethanol, you have to put more money into, money, what I'm saying, more energy into that process than you get by burning the ethanol. Hmm. So it's like you're going around buying dollar bills for a buck fifty. Yeah. Like and expecting to make a profit. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to go there. Yeah. But, yeah. But so that's the thing. That was the thing that ultimately doomed the whole code. Because we had a huge amount of corn ethanol being produced down here in the United States. We still have some because there are government, there are government subsidies. And so it's become what I call a subsidy dumpster, um, a place where government subsidies go to die and <laughs> people make a living basically, again, sucking, sucking off the government tit. <clears throat> Wasn't there another problem with the peak oil that they actually legitimately started finding a bunch more oil, like a, a bunch of new there, areas in the 2000s? Very, very, very small amounts. Huh. Um, com- the, compared to the actual, compared to the, to daily, to, to the actual amount being extracted, not, a, not hardly enough to matter. I mean, there was more being discovered. There always is. It's a long, slow curve, but it's been... 
I think 1984 was the last year that we do, that we discovered more than we've pumped. Hmm. And 1984 was a long time ago. I was only three. <laughs> yeah, you see. So for for your entire life since since you were three years old, every year more oil has been pumped out of the ground than uh, people have been than there has been a new oil fields that have been discovered. 1984. So, excuse me. That's probably uh, the last time I talked to a druid when I was like campaigning in my Dungeons and Dragon days. <laughs> Well, there we go. <laughs> I was waiting to say that one. <laughs> That's the joke I, I you're played, talking about. I played I played D and D also. Actually, I played D and D when it was still those the the original staple bound. Um, half size folded booklets. Oh yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah oh yeah. Right? I got awesome. I never got into it. I got one time I didn't know what I was getting into. I forget my, my one but I was like, Yeah, you gotta come up playing Dungeons and Dragons and I was like, Cool. Sounds all right. I never tried that. And then mm. uh, once they got going, I was just like No, too much this imagination is, this and role playing. <laughs> <laughs> No, I was I, I was I was really into it. and yes yes I played characters who were druids yeah, among other say, things yeah, yeah. but that that was late that was later when we got into AD and in the advanced D and D and they actually had I mean originally you hit you were a fighter a cleric a magic user yeah. or a thief take your yeah, pick yeah, yeah exactly and then no it was really exciting there's no when cards we, when we or got, anything no we got all... druids and things like that yeah. <laughs> no it's all role playing and uh, imagination and stuff. Writing stuff down, yeah. That's what those dice yeah. for that Dave and Gabe. Yeah, the, yeah, the ra- the rattle of D, yes, the rattle of D sixes. Oh yeah, boy, yeah. <laughs> wandering monsters, watch out! <laughs> so, what about um, what about hemp? Or do you think like, is there any chance that we'll we'll cross some sort of energy? Like, it seems like free energy is out there. Like, it seems like it's if it's not out there already, it definitely seems like it's possible. It seems like you know physics allows it. We just uh, well, are too stupid to figure no. it out. No, physics doesn't allow. This is this is one of the funniest things about modern about modern thinking. Okay, nobody's willing to next to nobody's willing to grapple with the fact that there are limits. That there are real, definite, solid limits. It's not just that mommy's being being unkind to us or something. It's that there's only so much of any given thing in the world. Um, physics does not allow free energy. There's there are things called the laws of thermodynamics, which are the absolute gold standard of physics. Um, they are they're the one set of laws that nobody has been able to come up with any way of challenging because, you know, they work. And the laws of thermodynamics say you can't get energy from nowhere. There's only so much. And anytime you use energy, you lose some of it into entropy. Mm. Okay? And we want free energy. Oh, do we want free energy? People will go on endlessly coming up with reasons why we can have free energy. We can't. Okay. Well, yeah. The when you hear all the stories mean. about about the you know the labs being suppressed and like the, oh, yeah. the Tesla's papers being taken and uh-huh. I mean we oh I know there's all kinds no, of yeah, well, maybe, yeah maybe it doesn't have to be free energy it just has to be really really efficient energy <laughs> yeah well and again and again people I, I see that as people desperately wanting to believe that Santa Claus is going to leave them you know. Uh, uh, you know, millions of ergs of free energy under the Christmas tree. <laughs> it's a kind of it's, it's a kind of great pumpkin logic. If if we can switch holidays here, uh, you know, Linus is always out there waiting for the great pumpkin to show up, and the great pumpkin never shows up. But we've got to have faith that sooner or later the group you just screw the great pumpkin. It's not going to happen. Um, people have been push have been pursuing the free energy thing with with might and main for how many years now? Um, the oldest example I know of is I think. Um, Ninth century in India, somebody came up with one of the standard gimmicks. It didn't work. Mm. 
And it's just, you know, it, it would... Well, I don't know if it would be nice if there was free energy. Uh, frankly, I think um, a lot of times we use energy to avoid, like, paying attention, to avoid um, dealing with dealing with ourselves, to avoid dealing with other human beings. Maybe we'd actually be a lot better off with less energy. Uh, but I know you can't say that. No, no, no. no I mean that's that's uh, <laughs> it's kind of one of the the themes in your books. It's it's like you 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 tend to, um, or I got the feeling that. That you're putting, you know, you're you're putting a lot of this back on us, right? Which is which is fine to a certain extent, but I I gotta admit, I feel like a victim from like whatever culture we're living in. Where and I no. I don't I, I usually take responsibility for my feelings and my but actions you, and stuff but, like that. But, but I, you've been screwed. But you have been screwed. Okay. Yeah. And okay, I feel like yeah. I feel like it's up to the elites to fucking change this. Like how yeah, how can we not, make a difference, really? Then okay, now they're not going to. The problem is, this is the thing, the pro, the, first of all, life does not have to be fair, okay? This is not a Hollywood movie. It does not have to have a satisfying conclusion where the, our heroes go riding off into the sunset, leaving the bad guys as, you know, as, in, you know, as smoking remnants in a pit of slime or something like that. The, the, world, isn't, the world does not have to be fair. Um, secondly... If you if you were not, I mean, the generations that came of age after the Reagan years, after the the moral collapse of our society, after everyone back, chickened out and backed away from the brink and said, "No, I guess we're just going to party hardy and let the future take care of itself," yeah, those generations have been screwed. And it's not something that's, it's not, ultimately, it's not something that, that can be reversed. It's, it's simply one of those historical tragedies. Hmm. These things happen. Sometimes you get an opportunity for people to make the right choice and they make the wrong one instead. And everybody who comes after for generations has to deal with the consequences. Of that is that fair? No. Does it happen? Sorry. Yeah. And that's where we are. People who, people who came of age after about, you know, 1986 or so. After the damage was done, those of you who you know who had adulthood in in any time from then on until now, yeah, yeah. you got you, you guys you guys got <laughs> comprehensively screwed by the older generation. They cashed in your future to power their SUVs. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean, I mean, having said that, having said that, I I feel like a, a victim to the, our our advanced society in that way, where I, I feel resent. In a way, I feel resentful, and like usually, I, I'm trying to be aware of those kind of emotions. But understood. But there is a there is a um, a need, or not a need, but a desire to also just being part of one of those, you know, like zeitgeisty kind of Jacques Fresco and uh, resource-based economies where there's, you know, you just get away from all this, go off the grid and they just figure shit out on your own. Like, there's definitely something attractive mm -hmm. to that. So, I can see how, after studying that, that would become probably more attractive, really, just, just getting into that. You know what I mean, Darren? Like, those societies mm -hmm. are just... Well, kind of, but that's not really the right word, but it's kind of the, probably one of the more appropriate words. I would make it the right word. Well, there are concepts that are hard to put in words. Um, language is a blunt instrument. Especially but, English. But yeah. <laughs> or so I'm English. told. I don't I, know any other languages. I'm, I, I do. I make my living off the English language. That doesn't mean I like it. It is a mess. <laughs> it really is a mess. But, but yeah, the thing is, 
when you know it's i suppose in in a way it's like it's like growing up it's what what it must have been like to grow up in germany in the 1950s and 1960s you weren't responsible right for right, nazism right. or the holocaust but but everybody all the older people around you were and that that imposes a very complex you know you're you're in a very complex historical situation it's again it's one that has happened many times in the past but that doesn't make it any easier for you mm. and so you've got the feelings of resentment you're looking at okay what are my options what can I do, given the world that, the, the, the world surrounding the situation the history has handed me? And ultimately, that's what all of us do. Mm-hmm. You know, we face the world. Um, those of us who were there at the time, who were, you know, who were trying to, you know, trying to do the wind turbines and the conservation. I, I got my master's, my master conservers certificate in 1984. Um, this is a, it was a program to train people to do high intensity conservation. And, and to do it on a volunteer basis so that they could help their neighbors and this kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I, I still have my certificate. And there, was a, there were a lot of things like that that all got swept under the rug or hauled out with the trash. And it's always, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of painful to look back on that, all the high hopes and all the possibilities that were there at that time. And to know that because... When it came when it came down to crunch time, people chickened out. Hmm. Well, enough people chickened out that the momentum went away, and yeah, everyone yeah. went, "Hey, you know, get me my SUV, get me my four hundred one k. I've got mine, Jack. Who cares about the future?" <laughs> so when, uh, how does it yeah. how does it in your eyes how does it sort of unfold? Like where where does it go from where we are today to you know only being okay. able to gas up on even days to you know, there's a bunch of people squatting in the 49th floor of the Petrocan Tower downtown around a bonfire. <laughs> it's okay. Basically, first, what, what we ha- what we have now is the situation that um, again, a lot of scientists were predicting in the 70s, where the costs of running the economy, running the industrial economy, are rising faster than the industrial economy can grow. So you have this sort of steady squeeze going on, on on effective output, hmm. and by that output, that means the whole range of goods and services that people use. So more and more people are being shoved out. Here in the U.S., um, the number of people who are permanently unemployed has hit an all-time record. This year, it hit another one last year, and so on. More and more people are being shoved out of the empl- out of the ranks of employment. They're being shoved out of society. Hmm. There are tent cities surrounding many American towns these days yeah. where people who cannot, they, they cannot, they, they don't have the money for rent. They, they live in tents. They, they get by however they can. I, I, I know people and I know more, I know of rather more people who have literally dropped out. They're living off the grid. They're not, they, they're not, you know, they're not paying rent. They're living in various sort of, ram, you know, however, the, wherever they can find, arranging for shelter, doing what work they can to get enough money to keep fed, this kind of thing. And so instead of being the kind of um, you only get gas on even, day, on even number of days or what have you, what's happening is that the economy is narrowing. And so fewer and fewer people can afford gas at all. That's how it's being done, rationing by price. So what I expect to have happen, um, just sort of the broad pattern, I'll get into the variations on that because there are also some variations. The broad pattern is that the circle of people who are still part of an advanced industrial society is getting smaller every year. 
and the number of people who are living in a deindustrial society, who are living, quote, in, on the fringes, off the grid, uh, under the radar. Um, that number is going up and up and up. And eventually it will reach the point where the um, circle, the, the number of people who are still part of, quote, industrial society is too small to maintain the industrial society, and what's left of it will fall to bits. <laughs> now, that's a sort of smooth arc. What, what makes that complex is that, and again, this is history, you, this plays out in the form of a series of cyclic crises. Okay? Um, you get economic crises. You get political and military crises. You get social crises. You just one lurch after another sort of imagine you've got this sort of gradual line heading off into the future I've described, and then imagine the curve going whoopity 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 up and down around it, making it difficult to trace the actual line. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's the way history actually plays out. So, you know, we have we have right now here in the US a burgeoning political crisis where most Americans think that um you know, the, the politicians who run our country um, have only their personal advantage and are not going to solve any of the problems because they're profiting from their problems. I mean, you, you get you get situations like this, the exit polls that shows, do you think Hillary Clinton is honest? Five percent of the voters say yes. <laughs> but still 50 percent vote for her. <laughs> um, We'll see. We'll see how long that lasts. I it seems like a big change already in the you know what you, you also notice out of the news, you know, everyone's kinda of lightening up on Trump and Sanders, just in case. Uh -huh. Because they realize that one or the other may win and you do not want to be, you know, the one who is constantly mocking the guy who now sits in the White House and could have some real power over your career. <laughs> So oil, so yeah. oil's running out, and we're and we're on the long descent to basically. So, so oil, oil is well, but again, running out meaning that we're going from light sweet crude, we're going to um, fracking, extractive tar sands, scraping the bottom of the barrel. It'll be running out for the rest of your life, right, but there's right, less right. and less of it available every year. So, so we're going to have to go back to those like, you, like you know, the, we'll tar sands, right? Because we got a bunch right up the road here. <laughs> Yeah, of what? Of well, we, yeah, we 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 live just right the tar sands. Oh yeah. So as like, well, it's way up. North. I wonder, it's like, not here. It's yeah, I know. Seven hours up north. But we could go get no, that the, shit the, the, to the, run the tar up tars. The, the tar sands that that's that's it's not quite the same kind of Ponzi scheme as as fracking. the as fracking, but it only makes any kind of financial sense if oil is three digits a barrel. Exactly, yeah. which which will be. I mean, is that oh, kind of when, when it gets that. back up there the next yeah, time? Yeah, that's yeah. when you know yeah. when it keeps going up. I guess after it hits a hundred and keeps going up from there. Well, no, well, no. That, that's you see, that's exactly it. What we've seen so far is that oil will spike and then it crashes and then it spikes and then it crashes and then it spikes and then it crashes. And the spikes are caused by people bidding up the price, and the crashes are caused by the economy dropping out because they can't afford hundred dollar barrel oil. And so, what's going to happen? Down through down through the next decade or two, maybe even longer, is that the price of oil will spike up, and the, and as it rises, it passes about fifty or sixty dollars a barrel, maybe seventy. You'll see people opening the the tar sands things again and starting to extract tar sands, and they'll invest a lot of money into that and pay you know all kinds of resources, and the bottom will crowd, drop out of it again, and they'll all go bankrupt. Meanwhile, somebody and then it'll come a up fortune again, when it bottoms out as well. Yeah. And so it just goes wham, 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 causing 
massive economic and ecological disruption on both ends of the swing. Huh. So what about this? I want to ask you about this abiotic oil theory as well, because because there's, you know, there's people that think that the Swedish scientists and the Russian scientists and oh, yeah. NASA yeah. even admitted that abiotic NASA. oil might hey, be a, a reality. There, there, there may be a small quantity of oil that's being produced abiotically. Um, I have yet to see any good evidence for that. Yeah, okay. But... The rate at which the, the thing that matters is how fast is it, be, right. is it replenishing existing not, oil? Not necessarily how, it's just how, fa- how fast it's how fast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, let's imagine that we've got abiotic oil being generated at a rate of, say, 25 gallons a year. Is that gonna, how long is that going yeah, to take yeah, to produce yeah. enough to power an industrial society? Yeah, now, in fact, more oil, even if the official version of oil production is correct, which I think is quite possible, more oil is actually being created all the time. And 40 or 50 million years from now, there's going to be a lot of oil around. Right, right. Unfortunately, waiting that long yeah. for your next fill-up is kind of a challenge. What about nuclear or fusion? Okay, to the um, fission power, we know how that works, and the basic um, thing is that no country on Earth has managed it without huge ongoing government subsidies. It is a white elephant. It does not pay for itself. You can have nuclear power if you're wealthy enough to keep on shoveling money down a rat hole. But that's all. Mm. Okay, it, does n- it never pays for itself. Just literally never. France, of course, has all these nuclear... France puts a huge amount of money every single year into keeping those nuclear power plants um, afloat. They can afford to now. As things contract, not so much. Now, fusion. <coughs> when I was born, scientists, the physicists and so on were saying, we'll have commercial fusion power, commercial fusion power working in 20 years. When I graduated from high school <laughs> in 1980, Scientists, the same scientists in some cases, were saying, we'll have commercial fusion power ready in 20 years. Now, I'm in my 50s. Commercial fusion power is supposed to be ready in 20 years. I am convinced that 10 million years from now, when the last human beings die off and the descendants of chipmunks become the next intelligent species, fusion will still be 20 years in the future. There are actually very good reasons to think that it's not, you can't do it on any scale smaller than a star. And unfortunately, that, you know, now we do we do actually have a fusion reactor handy. We the, the Earth orbits around it. You know, it's in, it's ninety three million miles away, which is convenient, so we don't fry with the radiation. And the energy that we get from that, the solar energy, is in fact one of the major energy sources we'll have. It's great. The only problem is it's really kind of diffuse, and it's intermittent, and you can't maintain the kind of ex- the kind of extravagant energy wasting habits that we're used to on that gentle you know, steady trickle of energy we get from the sun. Can you do marvelous things with it? Of course you can. We should be doing everything possible with solar energy. Uh, now, admittedly, up in Canada, you, you've got kind of a shortage there so a lot of time. But, um, but you know, large parts of the world, why, why anybody in the southern half of the United States doesn't have a solar water heater on their roof, for example? Yeah, or even like, uh, like I was looking at, you can get, even if you can get a little windmill, it's like, you can offset, there's people that got these little windmills and they're making enough power to power their whole house and the hydro company sends them a check. Yeah, if you you live in a good wind area, you could do that. You can also um, simply power down your lifestyle to the point that you can get by on a modest amount of 12 volt, which is not difficult to do, actually. 
And so you have a 12-volt system with three batteries in the basement, and you run, you know, a couple of lights and a computer and a stereo. Okay, cool. Hmm. It's a lot better than people had in 1900. Hey, I, got a, I got a headline from uh, Lockheed Skunkwork right here. It says, uh, <laughs> we're engineering a better tomorrow, compact fusion that's closer than you yeah. think. Mm-hmm. It's no secret that our Skunk Works team, that's a patented name, <laughs> often, uh, often yeah, finds itself on the cutting edge of technology as they work, work to develop a source of infinite energy. So basically yeah. bottling the sun in a magnetic bottle, they're saying they're going to... And that's been tried since when? Do you happen to know? Yeah. yeah. 1952. It doesn't work. Um, this, what, what this means is that skunk, the skunk works. Probably they, probably they were running out of spy plane designs, and so they want, decided to get some government subsidies in a different way. Fusion is the subsidy dumpster to end all subsidy dumpsters. Okay? Um, we pour, we've poured billions of dollars down that rat hole. And it is really, really successful at maintaining the career of uh, careers of, of you know physicists in the fusion field, and you know the the it, that's fine. It doesn't work. There are, as I previously noted, very good reasons to think it will never work. Um, there have been several very good books recently uh, recently written that actually analyze. The problem is a book called Sun in a Bottle by, was it Charles Seifer, that name was? And yeah, he, he talks about, it's, it's, you know, the strange history of fusion and the science of wishful thinking is the subtitle. The guy's a science writer, okay? He's, he's very pro-technology, but he looks at the, at, you know, the, the career of fusion, and it's really clear that, what, that you've got some of the world's brightest people pushing on a doormark pole. Hmm. Huh. I wonder, if, is it a matter of like, say in 50 million years when the chipmunk people are running around <laughs> and they've got the same amount of oil we had, like uh-huh. if we were to use that resource more sparingly, could we have developed these technologies? Like especially the, the, oh. the, the, if we can like, it seems like the sun's right there. If we would have, like it's right there. If we, if we would have been on the ball, it seems really possible. Yeah. No, no. The thing is, let's let's okay. We have our we have our chipmunk people, okay, and our chipmunk people will say are smarter than we are. This would not be hard. I, I I'm not impressed with the intelligence of my species. Uh, so the chipmunk people say, you know, we could burn through all this oil, or we could use it to figure out how we can use sun and wind and water in a really efficient way, and we can use the oil to build infrastructure, and we can leave most of it in the ground so it doesn't wreck the climate, and. Yeah, I think they could. I think they do that. They probably wouldn't get fusion. I, I, I remain fairly convinced that that one's a will-o'-wisp. But they could get to the point of, you know, leaving leading comfortable lives, much more comfortable than you know. Again, people had in 1900, where they have you know a modest amount of electricity. They have some electric lights. They have you know refrigeration and uh, trains and all or whatever. I, I don't know what chipmunks would do. They probably use zeppelins. I think of chipmunk power, you know, chipmunks and dirigibles. That would be a good one. <laughs> and yeah, you know, so you you have your solar powered dirigibles drifting drifting silently across the you know fifty million year in the future landscape. And yeah, the thing is, and this was what we were trying to do in the nineteen seventies. The idea was, okay, we still have a lot of oil left. Let's use that sparingly, stretch it out, and make the transition to a lower energy lifestyle that still provides a decent human existence we could we could do that we could have done that at this point we've thrown away the resources and the time and life does not look so good so but, you, don't, you don't think we uh, can do it right now with like tidal no. and wind and solar um it, it 
it would it would have but it would have taken it would have had to have started um like in the see, 70s, there, there, yeah, basically, it could have started. It could, the mid '80s would have been soon enough. Um, there have been there were some stu- there was a study published in 2005. I'm, tempor- I'm drawing a blank on the name of the of the lead author. It'll show up when I don't need it. But he has they, they, the study estimate was done for the Department of Energy here in the U.S. And he estimated that you could do the thing without causing any major disruptions if you just started 20 years before the peak of conventional oil production. Unfortunately, the peak of global conventional oil production was in 2005. So at this point, we're 11 years past the point, 31 years too late. Hmm. And that means we're not going to get through it without disruption. That means we're going to slam face first into the future we made for ourselves. Does that mean that everything's going to come crashing down and, you know, a horrible nightmare end of the world, um, you know, Mad Max, all the usual stuff that people know? It doesn't have to mean that. It does mean that we have a very rough road to hoe ahead of us. And Um, and, and you do, go ahead, keep going. One of the points of one of the books of mine you mentioned, the ecotechnic future, is that at this point, I, the, the the thing that seems to make most sense to me is to get is to get as many people as who are willing to do this to step out of the up to their eyeballs in the technology, up to their eyeballs in the, in the energy use moving into more sustainable lifestyles, so they can get useful technologies through the crises of the near future into the hands of the future after that. So that if, for example, you know, solar water heaters, if, if enough people know how to make those and how to use them, that information can reach our descendants and make their lives better. Um, windmills, that's another useful technology. There's a lot of useful things that we happen to know now that could be passed on as long as people aren't too busy staring at little pictures on glass screens to do anything. Well, they could just Google it. <laughs> the cloud as should still Google, be there. As long as Google laughs. Well, we're, yeah. only one, we're only one EMP wave away from, you know... One, one, one of these anyway, days they're going to build the next cloud and they're going to accidentally hack into the Akashic record. <laughs> nah, they upgraded those two Akashic A-track tapes a long time ago. <laughs> No, the the cloud is, to my mind, one of the scariest things in existence. It's precisely kind of because weird, eh? all it takes is in one electronic burp, and it's all gone. Yeah, I like books, you know, the physical kinds <laughs> with maybe cloth and paper and things like that. They're much more durable. That's just it. I should. Bu- I'm going to buy a book on solar water heaters. Yeah. What else would you need? A windmill, a solar water heater. Um, and a garden that's the thing i don't think you can it's a bitch to pull that shit off in canada man it's cold Uh, but it can be done it can be done it can be Um, done but you're like there were people doing doing it on prince edward island back in the 70s it's fairly cold there it's probably worse than calgary yep (laughs) think yeah but you got the ocean Um, what what the fuck do you got here man there's nothing what does the ocean have to do with gardening the power goes out there's a million calgarians and there's nothing to eat yeah um, how, how's how's the what kind of climate change are you have? Is, is it are you getting the drought the same kind of drought things that they're getting uh, for the well? South? It's always pretty droughty here. Like Calgary's Carol's is Calgary's heralded as one of the sunniest cities on earth. Right, we're we're supposed uh-huh. to get three hundred plus days of sunshine a year. Mm-hmm. So we've got well, a little river. Or it doesn't rain a lot. Like I, I, we keep a garden, but you have to water it every every day. Oh, I understand. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, now, here's the thing. Okay, you've got all this sunlight. 
why isn't anyone doing anything with you know? Do you have do you have a solar water heater on your roof? Do I know? If you've got three hundred days of sun a year, you you yeah, probably yeah need, yeah you would think yeah you probably, you you probably produce most of your hot water that way for free. Mind you, in the winter it's only sunny for like seven hours, but still yeah, and the I sun's like that. behind the horizon because it's only three feet off the horizon. Gotcha. Yeah, but now one of the other things that's going to happen as we cycle down, there is this notion in in the developed world and in the industrial world that people should be able to live, have lead the same lifestyle everywhere, and that's really convenient if you've got vast amounts of fossil fuels. It's just that in any other context, it doesn't work. So, for example, very likely. The most successful lifestyle in a place like Calgary or its equivalent on our side of the of the border is not that far from the lifestyle of the people who used to live there before your ancestors might show up, which means nomadic, nomadic hunting or herding. Okay? That works fairly well if you don't mind living in a yurt. Um, I kind of mind. Would, I guess to be yeah, right now, if the people were gone now, I would just live in a really nice yurt. Mm-hmm. yurt. <laughs> but it's but of course it's the transition between um a million people living in Calgary, all of whom are completely dependent on fossil fuels, and the Calgary of say tw- the year twenty five hundred where where you have these you know these stark metal ruins rising out of grassland and the the local tribes are taking them apart bit by bit to keep them in metal and maybe trade some to you know people who aren't quite so lucky um, they're the, the idea that every place in the world ought to have the same model of of inhabitant you know you've got the big cities you've got the suburbs you've got that only works when you have fossil fuels right and so i think one of the things we'll be seeing is that a lot of places very likely including calgary are going to move back into um non-urban modes non-urban possibly very likely non-agricultural modes of subsistence we do have a pretty big agricultural thing here too, but you see people <laughs> yeah. just start leaving the city really. But wouldn't it, wouldn't it be yeah, easier okay. wouldn't it be easier to, to all live in the same area in some ways where you the transit is easier and all that and not 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 a, not if you got a million people. Right. I mean the, the, the problem each is other leaving alive. them all. No. Yeah, yeah, they, that's one way to reduce population, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recommend it, you understand, but it's it has been repeatedly used. So you're you're talking about uh, in one of your books there or on one of your uh, YouTube videos I saw you about I think something about the ideal maybe city or town size being like five to ten thousand where you could kind of like support yourself or something like that. Yeah. Uh, it depends on it depends on, on on local details. Yeah. Um I live I live in a town of twenty thousand people. And it's you know, it's up in the middle of the Appalachians, it's surrounded by farmland, it's really out of the way. And it's a good size it's it's a very good size. That's a place to live. Um, there are other parts of the country where you wouldn't want to be much above five thousand because the local resource base is that much that much mm-hmm. um, narrower. Mm-hmm. So you look at where you are. You say, okay, could this many people feed themselves off the surrounding landscape with farms and all the usual stuff taking place? Is there enough water? Things like that. Um, it it really does depend on where you are. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. And so, and the thing is, of course, none of us knows exactly what's going to happen anyway. We don't know climate change. Right, right. Um, when when my wife and I moved away from the West Coast here into the Appalachians, uh, there was a lot of speculation as to what would happen. As it happens, we're getting most of the rain that used to be falling in the Great Plains. <laughs> yeah. 
But seriously, we actually get more rain now than we did before the climate started changing, and which which is great as long as you like vegetables <laughs> or we had a fine garden. Um, I know plenty of people out toward the edge of the Great Plains who are hurting because you know they don't get the rain anymore. We're in the Great Plains. You're in the Great Plains. Are you? Are, I mean, is Calgary We're on getting the west about, side of the Great Plains? Yeah. Are you getting about the same amount of rain as you used to? More. Are we? More. Yeah. Yeah, well, we had okay. flooding, right? The last couple of years we had a flood because rain and okay. melt yeah. and stuff. Now, the thing is, that's that's good to know because that means the, that um, the Calgary area may be viable for agriculture in the long term. There is a um, huge amount of farming used to be our shit before oil was $100 a barrel. Oh, I understand that. I understand that. The question is climate change because there are some, there are some substantial parts of the United States that used to be major farmland are going to be desert. Hmm. That's like California, right? California. If anyone anyone who is listening to us is living in California right now, I have one piece of advice. Flee. Get out. (laughs) Escape while you can. California is a basket case. You've got way too many people living on way too little arable land. You've got catastrophic droughts. You've got... um, Ethnic problems that uh, problems that will not quit that are rising toward flashpoint. Um, it's California is going to be I, I think is going to be one of the one of the true basket cases of the 21st century. And you and and crucially, you've got this huge industrial structure uh, based on the whole internet thing. You've got Silicon Valley. You've got all that stuff, and that whole industry is writing for a fall. You know, it's it's sucked up an immense amount of investment. My guess is it's going to go the way that, down here, the area where they used to be America's factory heartland, extending basically from Philadelphia across to Chicago through the through the northern part of the of the east to midwest of the country. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, they call it the Rust Belt because all the factories got abandoned. Mm-hmm. And you, st- you you literally you take the train from here from where I live in Cumberland. You take the train west, and you literally pass ruined brick factories that are surrounded by forests. It's like Mayan temples in the jungle. It's one of the spookiest things I've ever seen. <laughs> Seriously. What, what, and not, not just one or two of them, lots of them. Yeah. Yeah, it is kind of scary. That's a... it, it's, it's spooky. And so California is going to be like that. California is going to be it's, uh, not quite so bad as Las Vegas. We'll get to that in a moment. California, you're, you're going to have, you know, 50 years from now, you'll be able to walk through what used to be Silicon Valley and hear these vast, dilapidated, former, you know, uh, tech con- tech campuses hmm. that have been left to the to the rattlesnakes and the and, and you know um, and the coyotes. What are some other things people can do then? Like, what about vertical farming or some of these other other things that are. Uh, the, the, thing, the thing to look at is what's the energy input and where are you going to get the energy? Right. Vertical farming makes perfect sense if you're within, um, if, if, you, if you're close enough to the ground to walk up a stairway. Um, skyscrapers make no sense unless you, unless you have plenty of energy. Now, that said, sky, I think skyscrapers are a really good thing. People a thousand years from now are going to be very grateful to us because we got all this metal out from the depths of the earth and stuck it up above the ground where they could get to it. Yeah, it, seem, it seems so to the, me like we, it, have to, we have to get more it, local and less global on, on, on supplies, supplies and stuff. Exactly. Mm. exactly. But,
But what will happen as as industrial civilization falls down is that any you know the people who live in what's left of the big old cities they've got their they've got their money supply. Everyone needs metal. Everyone needs iron. So you know you tear you tear down skyscrapers a bit at a time. Take the I beams, chop them into length, sell them to to you know to, to traders who will sell them to blacksmiths. Uh, so you know that's one thing the Calgary will. There you go, Darren. There's your business right there. Darren puts those things up every day, so he can just start tearing. Well, there you go. Yeah. So he, so he can. No, seri- seriously. I did. I, I did a novel a while back called Stars Reach. <laughs> it's set about a, a little under 500 years in the future, in in what is then called Meriga. That's that's what America turns into. They, they're the with a G? Meriga. Yeah. Meriga with the G. And the, and Genda is directly to the north. That's so we would, we would be Grimeriga, then I guess. <laughs> Grimeriga, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but so the the main but the main character of this is a ruin man. His job is to take down old buildings to salvage the metal. That's how he makes his living. Huh. I so I, I really, I mean, we're already getting to the point that um, you know people stealing car, uh, copper and other metals like that—that's become a, a major form of crime these days. Um, that's that's it's the growth industry of the future. Yeah, like I was watching. The- Fucking documentaries are in Detroit where they're going in and they're just gutting old factories and mm-hmm. pulling out all the old wires and stripping them. Mm-hmm. Someone took a hundred grand worth of copper from one of the sea cans up by the airport. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Oh yeah, no, that kind of thing happens all the time these days. But yeah, actually, I had in 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 this this novel the back, part of the backstory was that the the Ruinmen's Guild originally got started in Detroit. Oh, okay. That's funny. The ruins. I've, I've been the there. Ruins yeah, I've been there. I've seen. I've cool. seen the ruins, and so yeah. <laughs> so, so what about some like you know? You hear about all this. Uh, you know, the green movement has kind of been hijacked as well by by uh, by oh, sort has. of greed and, and corruption as, and and we hear all these different things in the media about this is good, this is bad. This. How do people know? Like, can you point to us to some resources that we can trust as okay. far as like uh, just not being full of propaganda and being, you know, like true representation of energy gained okay, or acquired yeah. and all yeah. that? The the first thing to do, the first and most useful thing to do, is to take your television, unplug it, and throw it away. <laughs> Seriously. Um, you can assume that if it's on TV news, it's a lie. <laughs> okay, good. Or at least it's, at least it's being bent around in a propaganda way. Yeah. Get rid of your television. People ask me all the time. You know, I, I, have a, I have a fairly busy life. I do a lot of things. I've written, you know, 30-some books. Um, I've done, I, I do a lot of other stuff. And people go, well, where do you find the time? The answer mm-hmm. is real simple. I don't own a television. Yeah, yeah. I, I have not owned a television in my adult life, and so that means I have an extra four to six hours a day that yeah. most people don't, that they spend, you know, sitting there in the, on the sofa with drool puddling in their laps. Um, I do more interesting things. My, my, basic, my, my basic piece of advice is you can have a television or you can have life, not both. Take your pick. Yeah, I like that. Okay. What about a yeah. TV without so, cable? No, just get rid of No, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Get it's just a big computer there. <laughs> Chuck it. Um, if you really desperately yeah, let's call need, it that. let's call it a big computer. <laughs> if, if you really desperately need a, um, a, a video fix, okay, go get some DVDs of old programs that are old enough that the propaganda is outdated. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And play one on your computer um, every so very often. Um, you know, I, I 
I, I have a, I have a small number of old DVDs. They are not TV programs. Most of them are movies I liked when I was a kid. Um, but I don't I don't watch a lot of it, uh, visual stuff, and it's partly because partly because I'm not that much into it, but partly because I've got enough other things to do, and I have more fun. But so start by getting rid of your television. That's thing one. The second thing to do if you want to get a perspective on energy that will actually make sense of things, go to the books that were published before 1980. Hmm. You can find, you can typically find them in used bookstores. I don't know what the Calgary used bookstore scene is like, but I'm sure yeah, there's you've got quite a, There's quite a few. Yeah, there's some good ones. Excellent. You want the, you want the kind of old, dusty sort of used bookstore where they don't change out the stock much. Right. And if you go way back into the darkest, dimmest, dingiest corner, up there high, you'll see what I call the Naked Hippie Library. <laughs> and the Naked Hippie Library is all those books that came out in the 60s and 70s from the back to the land, appropriate tech, limits to growth kind of people. And they always stick them in a corner. So, you know, nobody wants that stuff. You can literally get some of the best books in the world on energy and on, on resources, on um, doing things for yourself, Free on low tech. Yeah, that too. Um, for pen, you know, for, for for less than they cost back when um, a dollar was a lot of money. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good. Uh, so, good go, but the the other thing there, generally speaking, um, one of the things that keeps people caught in these sort of loopsy, endless loop traps of circular thinking is that they don't read or watch or pick. They don't get any information that isn't from right now. Did, did did you ever read um, nineteen eighty four by George Orwell? Um, yeah, a long time to ago. It on audio okay, a long time ago. ago. One of the gimmicks in there is that nobody was allowed to keep records of history. Okay, uh-huh. nobody was allowed to look anything up from the past, and so you know when the official word came out, you know that um, uh, Oceania has never been allied with with East Asia. Okay, even though it was true six months ago. How do you know? Right. It's just your memory. You know, there's the, the official, the, you know, the, the, the official word coming from the Ministry of Truth. And that same mentality is pervasive these days. Yeah, and, and um, it's, it's organic, though. Like, I've, I'm in that trap. Like, every time yeah. I go to something, I automatically want to know the latest. Like, I don't want to go to, like, read a book in the, from the 70s. You see, um, and that's, and yeah, that's the trap. And that's what you have been taught that. Hmm. That habit has been that that that's that's been shoved at you over and over again for years, and so it's hardwired in your mind. You need to consciously fight against it, and so this is one of the reasons. Go to the you know go find the naked hippie shelf. Seriously, there if you some of some of the books there if you can find other homes in garbage for example that's a great one. It, the integral urban house. Um, if you, the best book on the theory, Overshoot by William Catton Jr. Hmm. Um, I, 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 that book has had more influence on my thinking than literally anything else that has ever been printed. I, I, I had the chance to meet Bill Catton shortly before he died. He was an amazing guy. He saw exactly what was happening. He wrote about it with incredible clarity. So, you know, I, I'm, and all of our listeners, if you can find a copy, the title is Overshoot. It's by William Catton Jr. Um, you want to read it. Okay. Good. So, yeah. Great. <clears throat> it, um, it is. It is a. It is a harsh read. It is not. Um, you know. It's. It's not. It's not a gentle, warm, fuzzy pat on the head. Um, <clears throat> but then we don't live in that kind of world anyway. So. Um, yeah. Stay. Well, staying on this topic, sort of. We. I kind of blew by it before. But what about these? Uh, 
these external cultures like the or the cities that are being developed. I heard about one there they were gonna start on an island or something and the, the kind of like the the resource based economy type stuff like Jacques mm-hmm. Fresto cities or, or these is there any of these things that people could actually go to to live like sustainably? Uh, um, I have heard a lot of talk about them. Right. I have not seen anyone actually do anything yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. Now, wh- one of the things that you'll learn if you read about the naked, if you find that naked hippie library, okay, <laughs> yeah. is that the amount of stuff you can have, the amount of energy you can throw around, if you're dependent on your on your own muscles and your own actions, it does not amount to a cozy middle class lifestyle. Yeah, right. That's the thing yeah. that they discovered. That when everyone, when when the six, when the sixties scene turned, went back to the land, and everyone bailed out of the Haight Ashbury and went up into Northern California to communes here and there, they found out the hard way that um, you know there's a reason why peasant cultures usually don't have a lot. They, you know, they just about get by, and that's because you know by the time you've provided with your own your own food, your own shelter, your own clothing, with your own hands, you've just about run out of energy. Right. So. I have my doubts about the very, these various external societies. What I tend to advise, advise people instead is adaptation in place. Basically, look around where you are now and say, okay, how can I start ratcheting down my energy usage? How can I start disconnecting myself hmm. from, the, from the information flow, the, the propaganda flow? How can I start disconnecting myself from dependence? And if you just look at it, do one thing at a time. In, in in the Druid Order that I had it until until uh, last December, the Ancient Order of Druids in America. And this is still this is still their policy. I'm still very much a member, by the way. I just I, I was in I was, I was in the big chair for 12 years, and I said, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, enough. Um, there are plenty of other people who are qualified, but we have a we have a custom that everybody during their first year of membership, when they're doing the the training for the first degree of initiation, that you make three changes in your life to cut down on the burden you place on the planet. We don't tell you which changes. You choose them. You take, you make the three changes, and you keep doing, and you keep those in place for a year. What were yours? And some people do what? What were yours? Um, I'd have to remember. <laughs> um, I have quite a range of them, though. I've never owned a car. And you don't have a TV. I don't have a television. I don't have a microwave. I use about a third of the energy footprint of the average American. Um. I grow a certain amount of my own food. Um, I, I could go on. I, 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 I really got into the kind of back to the land, long hair, naked hippie mentality back in the day, and I've never seen any reason to change because I enjoy it. I, I would, I would actually have to go back to my notebooks from when I first became a member. Well, I mean, and, you've done it. Obviously, you've done quite a bit since then. So, what? Oh, yeah, uh, no, it's, what percentage of yeah. your own food do you think you're able to grow? Um, we don't, where we are right now, it's, um, because of the other calls on my time, um, it's, not, it's maybe 10%. However, most of the, uh, much of the rest is locally sourced. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, one of the advantages of living in a little, you know, a, a an old red brick mill town in the north central Appalachians, just south of the Pennsylvania border and not very far from Amish country, is that the local grocery stores buy a lot of stuff locally. Yeah. So, um, you know, if I was not writing full time, if I didn't have a, a range of other projects, I could probably produce um, maybe half my own food. Yeah. You know, and this is not this is not in a farm, mind you. We live in a we live in an, an ordinary house with a plain backyard. 
and the backyard is all garden, but that's what it is. So you think, so, so yeah, that's right. The answer isn't, I mean, that's what I kind of think too. Like it's, it, it's mm-hmm. tough for just a family to just go off the yeah. grid and boom, be by yourself. Like you're probably going to fucking no, you, starve yeah. one winter. Exactly. That's, that's not a viable approach for most people. The thing to do again, adapt in place. If you have a compost, you, you can put in a compost bin, you can improve your soil. You can grow, you can grow the high, the high quality stuff, the vegetables and so on where you're getting your grains and you're getting your other, your other bulk crops from, from, from farmers in the local area. You're also providing some kind of good or service. Um, so you're part, of the, you're part of the community of exchange. That's perfectly valid. That's the way most people have lived. And so, you know, you don't have to worry about trying to, feed, trying to do everything for yourself. The important thing is to start moving in the direction of disconnecting yourself from the corporate global overstructure. What about like hoarding or prepping? Do you do you, do you uh, subscribe to anything like that? Like, do you have a do you have a certain amount of supply of food? Well, we have a well-filled pantry, basically. <laughs> I do, I don't know exactly how many months it would work out to, but it's convenient for us because you know we get snow here and so on. It's convenient for us to have a large pantry and and and, and a bunch of food in it. I don't think of that as, you know, I'm prepping for for, for this and that or the other. It's just, it was back in the day, back not that long ago. In fact, everybody had that kind of thing if they could afford it. Right. Everybody had, you know, sacks of rice and, and, and sacks of beans and, um, you know, some... Jams. And... Yeah, exactly. Jam, yeah, jam and pickles and things like that. That was just normal. A lot of what we're talking about here is just getting back to normal after a brief period of fossil fuel intoxication, we had the party, okay? We w- we've woken up the next morning, sprawled on the couch with a lampshade in our head. The house is a disaster area. Several other people are passed out at various points of the floor. Now our job is to clean things up and get things back to normal. Okay? Unfortunately, the hangover from petroleum is a mother. Yeah, no doubt. Why yeah. do you think, like... When do you think that, when do you think the tipping point will be, I guess, when everyone's going to kind of wake up? I was waiting, I was waiting for that question. Never. The history moves slowly. This is something nobody, nobody catches unless they actually go back and, and read closely in the history of things. You think something like, oh, you know, the first, the second world war. Okay. Bang, bow, no. If you actually read people's diaries and read accounts day by day, it's a gradual thing. There are rumors and there are troubles and things go for weeks and months and there's a declaration of war, but then not much happens. And then all of a sudden a bunch of stuff happens here and then there's nothing. It's, people will be able to pretend that everything's fine and no, no, we're going to Mars. We're, progress will keep marching on. The current problems, that those are temporary. Don't worry about it until they die. Hmm. The younger generations who grow up in this are going to go, oh, this is normal. Of course, there, you know, there isn't always enough to eat. And of course, you know, the, the skyscrapers downtown are falling down or being cut apart into you know, lumps of metal to sell the blacksmith. That's normal. 
if you read well, one of the things you can do if you're if you're minded to is read translations of writings from people in very late Roman times when the empire was on the rocks. It had already been torn into chunks. The chunks were being ruled by barbarian warlords, and these Romans were writing as though it was just you know these well you know it's one of these little problems. I'm sure everything will be just fine in a few more years. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, when you're in the middle of it, you don't really notice it. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, can you, see you, you, that. Seriously, yeah. the middle the middle ages are breathing down your neck, and you don't even notice it. And I'm quite sure. I am quite sure that you know, some someday, a thousand years from now, people will be reading over translations from ancient English um, of writings from you know some some executive or something of of America's last tech corporation located in Cleveland or something and he's going oh no it's it's yes i i, I understand that you know the united the, the united states has been torn apart into into 15 different um quasi independent countries and most of them are ruled by warlords and uh, there's no electricity or running water anywhere but these are just temporary we'll get everything under control just to, you get the internet back up any day now mm. Yeah, that's, that's people that are very sense. good at fooling themselves. So, hey, John, I got a question here from our um, our friend Jason. who actually just happened to join a Druidic order um, himself. I think uh, I think it's in the UK. Um, I got to find out which one it is. I can't. He's got his email is so long. I'd have to. Is it, to find it, out, is it the Order of Bards of and Druids? I wonder. That was where I. That was the one I first joined. It was in. It was in England. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I'll, if yeah, I perfect. if I see it here, but he's got a he's got quite a, an interesting question, and it's on my list of something to ask, anyways. But it's kind of a three part question, and it's on uh, how does the UFO phenomenon appear to you when viewed through the following lenses? So the first one is like peak oil and its many implications. The second mm-hmm. one is the history of military technology and its associated psychological operations. Mm-hmm. And the third one is the limited understandings of our human consciousness. Okay, and all three of those are perfectly valid. Now, I should warn my re- I should warn our listeners that I've actually written a book on this subject. It's called The UFO Phenomenon. I, I know it's not a very original title, but okay, the first thing that we can do, the first thing we can um, figure out from um, let's look at it, let's look at UFOs through the lens of peak oil. Now, what we know is natural resources are limited. Energy, the amount of energy. I mean, ener- there may be an infinite amount of energy in the cosmos, but the amount of concentrated energy any intelligent species can get on any planet is finite. Okay. Now, there is a thing called um, Fermi's paradox. Yeah. You probably heard of it. Yeah. And Fermi's paradox is, okay, if there are other intelligent life forms out there, the, I mean, the, 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 the Milky Way galaxy is 13 billion years old. There have been planets for a very, very, very large portion of that. If, there, if life normally comes into being, well, why aren't we seeing evidence of you know, massively advanced technological societies all over the galaxy? What's wrong here? What? Now, What's being missed in that is an assumption. Usually when you come up with a para- something that looks like a paradox, it's because nobody's paying attention to one of the assumptions. The assumption here is that technological progress is limitless. The assumption is that technological progress does not suffer from um, the law of diminishing returns. You know, if you've done basic economics or anything else, you know the law of diminishing returns. Um, as you as you go further and further in any process, 
for the same amount of input, you get less and less output until eventually it drops to zero and then goes into reverse. You end up with negative returns. Okay, that's real common. Our, our fantasy, our giddy belief in modern Western industrial society is that does not apply to technology. Technology can do anything. Technological progress can accomplish all things. I personally think that's crap. I personally think that technological progress, like everything else, is subject to the law of diminishing returns. And I think one of the reasons it's subject to the law of diminishing returns is that there's only a finite supply of resources and energy. Now, we know from our own human experience, peak oil being an important part of that, that we're not going to the stars. Not now, not in the lifetime of our species. We don't have the energy. It took us fantastic amounts of energy to get to the point of just getting to the moon, and the moon is like a whisker-thin distance from the Earth in cosmic scales. It's really close. The stars are not close. I mean, if the Earth and the moon were an inch apart, the nearest stars would be hundreds of miles away. People don't, people don't tend to get that. So, seen through the, um, through the lens of peak oil, what we see about the UFO phenomenon is whatever's going on is not from the stars. Hmm. Now, okay, UFOs and military technology. It is an interesting point that has not often been noted that the UFOs that people actually see, as opposed to the UFOs that, that get talked about in the media, and whatever, but the things that people actually see in the sky inevitably look like whatever the U.S. Air Force is testing. Oof. Okay? In 19, from 1947 into the 1950s, you have these little silver dots. They're called high-altitude balloons. Um, from the early 1950s into the 1970s, you have lights. NLs, nocturnal lights doing these are, this is the era of the U-2 and the SR-71. Oh, you have satellites dropping from space now and again. Do you remember when it was black triangles? All yeah, of a sudden there were these black is. triangles yeah. these black triangles showing up everywhere. We then found out what stealth aircraft looked like. Black triangles. Yeah, but I don't know if that's, you can correlate that exactly. It's, uh, there's too many it's large black triangles being seen, you know? Yes, and well, there's, there's, what I ended up arguing in the UFO phenomenon is that there's, the UFO phenomenon is a complex thing. There are many things feeding into it, okay? Right. Yeah. But one of the core things is that the U.S. Air Force intelligence has been using it as a screen for spy planes, and they've been faking spy planes. Okay? Yeah. My guess is that the, black, the, the really big, slow-moving black triangle that goes uh, drifting quietly yeah. across yeah. the sky, yeah. okay, um, it's probably inflatable. Probably oh, helium filled, and it um, is brought out. It was it was brought out. I don't think it's been used for a while, but it was brought out to confuse Russian spies, hmm. to make them not sure what was the other black triangles. Yeah, yeah, right. Which were the with the early stealth test beds, which which had to be kept secret. If you look at General, more broadly speaking, if you look at UFO, at the UFO phenomenon, through the eye of intelligence, of military intelligence and of, of espionage, um, Jacques Vallée pointed this out a long time ago. He did a book on messengers of deception, which was, to my mind, one of the best things ever written about UFOs, although it's been roundly ignored by almost everybody. <laughs> and he pointed out that 
the problem with most UFO research is that it doesn't take into, a, into account the possibility that the phenomenon is intended to deceive. Yeah. That the, that the people, that the beings, the being, we will say the beings, the people who are behind it are trying to fool you into thinking something. And so my argument was, was basically that what, what the, the UFO phenomenon was manufactured by the U.S. Air Force as a way to, as, as camouflage. And they fed all of these stories about mysterious landings and alien beings to keep Russian and Chinese spies from paying close attention to what was actually going on, which was a series of, you know, the whole gamut of American military, secret military aviation tests. So are they flying around in some, some highly technological craft, like with anti-gravity or anything like that, as far no. as like a secret space I've, I've program? Seen, I've, seen no, I've seen no evidence for that. All the evidence that I've seen suggests that what they're flying around in, again, was was high-altitude balloons in the 1950s, um, U-2s, SR-71s, stealth planes, um, the, what's it, SR-91 Aurora? Yeah. Um, which was, they dusted that off again a little while ago. It's, it's, it's probably the ultimate white elephant out of the skunk works. By such accounts as I have been able to gather, it costs like $1 million a flight. So what it's about an amazing the- piece. What about the thousands of witness sightings of, you know, like real, real discs or um, Walmart sized craft? I mean, there's a like there's an orange orb phenomenon going around, flying around mm-hmm. in orange orbs. No. I mean, now here's the thing. Here's the thing. The UFO phenomenon is a complex thing. Yeah. There's more than one thing going on here. Well, and that's going to get now, into part three, which is the limit. That's going to get into. Well, actually, we need to. We need to. We need to step. Actually, I'm going to set part three aside because there are at least there's at least one other physical thing going on here. Okay. Um, it has been demonstrated over and over again. Although you will still find people who insist this doesn't happen, tectonic stress on, on fault lines will produce glowing balls of light. Earth, earthquake lights, or whatever they call them. Yeah. Well, earthquake lights are one manifestation, but even yeah. when an earthquake doesn't go off, you get in a high tectonic stress area, you get these balls of light that drift to the earth. Nobody. Nobody's been able to get the grant, the granting, the funding. Yeah, yeah. To find out exactly what they are, but this is a known phenomenon. They exist all over the world. They've been sighted throughout time. People explain them using various things. A lot of the glowing balls that are seen are probably from that source. And the people who see them, they're, they're totally, they're, they're they're being totally honest. You know, they're saying, "Yes, I saw this glowing light rising up from the ground." Yes, you did. And of course, the folks, you know, the the pseudo skeptics saying, "No, no, you had to be hallucinating. It doesn't fit my version of reality." So we've so we've got the we've got the spy planes and we've got the, the the tectonic orbs. Okay, so those things are going on. Now, when we start getting into the limitations of human consciousness, is when things get really really strange. Every detail of the UFO phenomenon appeared in fiction before people started seeing it. Oh, Missing time. No, I I kid you not. Missing time. Um, UFOs stopping um, electri- the, the electrical systems of cars, all of it appeared in science fiction dating back to the 19-teens, and then it started happening. Um, the whole abduction thing. Mm-hmm. What's going on? There is something, but the thing is, I'm not saying that people are making this up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saying that we're, we are dealing with one of the ways that human consciousness shapes its own experience of reality. Like, the tulpa, like, like the tulpa thing in a way. Yeah, there, among other things, we shape, we create aspects of what we experience based on the narratives that we're used to, that we know, and this is you know 
This is really spooky stuff. People, you know, back in the day, this is another thing that Jacques Vallée talked about. Back in the day, people had, you know, close encounters with strange non-human beings whom they called elves, angels, devils. People, some people still have those encounters, by the way. Um, nowadays, we don't believe in elves. Most of us don't believe in elves, angels, or devils. So we have encounters with aliens yeah, instead. Yeah, yeah. Because that's our worldview. Human beings, as I mentioned earlier, human beings are not that smart. I'm sure the chipmunk people 50 million years from now will, will be giggling at us. <laughs> okay. We're not that, we're not that smart, but, and, and we don't just see, quote, what's out there. Am I, are we, you, talk to some people who, who really studied the way the mind assembles sensation into, into images of the world, what's, what some philosophers call figuration. It's really rather unnerving because we actually put the world together in our minds. We take these these. these, these the, the data we get from, from our senses, and we assemble that according to patterns that are in our minds. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we assemble those in some very, very strange ways. And there's a lot of stuff that ties into religion. There's a lot of stuff that ties into magic, if I may use a really loaded word, mm-hmm. and so on, that, that deals very much with this, this fact that the world is not just out there, that we participate in its creation. And that the narratives in our heads shape the world we experience. I agree. That happened. I had a <laughs> tiny little example that happened to me uh, just mm-hmm. the other day, and it was just a little one. Just reading an email, but I was in a real frustrated, kind of like uh, out of sorts mood, mm-hmm. and I completely read it wrong to the point where then I started to overreact about what I thought it said until I realized uh-huh. I was completely wrong. And I swear it was because yeah. of the, the, the state of being that I was in exactly. Re- reflected exactly. actually what I saw in that email. Exactly. It was kind of creepy, actually. Yeah. And this kind of thing happens all the time. A lot of what is involved in the, the kind of spiritual training we do in Druidry is a matter of learning to step back from that and say, whoa, Nelly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why am I projecting this stuff into the world yeah, when yeah. it's me and, and so there are a lot of the you know the kind of spooky powers that the, 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 the wizards have is simply a matter of being able to step out of the narratives that are running through everyone else's head and that's a lot of what we're talking about with regard to people well, people are stuck in this narrative that says that progress must triumph and so they will not see the world dropping out from beneath their feet like the, these roman guys that we're talking about no no the empire lives forever even though there hasn't been an emperor for 120 years <laughs> and you know, the, the, the roads have been abandoned, the aqueducts have fallen down, and the empire, you know, the empire must last forever. That was the narrative that's playing in their head. And so they're, seeing, they're not seeing the world the way somebody would see it who, was actually, who did not have that narrative. In the same way, there's, there's a thing, actually, we've been talking about this in the comments page of my blog, um, the, the smirk. Okay, you, you've probably seen photos of Martin Shkreli, the um, the, pro, the medical profiteer, um, who has that very distinctive smirk. I just on heard about that on the way. I just heard about that on the way here, actually, to the studio. No agenda. Yeah, yeah. but I haven't yeah. seen it. But I heard about the smirk. But the smirk. The smirk. <laughs> now, here's the thing: a, a lot of us, a number of us, who have been talking about trying to talk to people about the limits of growth, the end of progress, the problems with industrial society, people will respond, their faces go click into this, into the smirk. One of my, who, who was it? I think, actually, I think this was, this was, oh my um, God, look at it. 
Yeah, <laughs> you've seen the smirk. Yeah. Yeah, James Howard Kunstler talks about. Uh, I believe it is. Talk to talk to me. We were we were actually um, in one in a phone conversation. Uh, in, I think on the air, <laughs> and he mentioned the iPhone moment, where he's trying he's trying to explain to people that technology isn't isn't it it, ha, it has limits. It's not omnipotent, and he can guarantee when he does that, half a dozen people will pull up their iPhones and hold up their iPhones and and do the smirk, as though the existence of that iPhone proves that he must be wrong. Okay. <laughs> That smirk is when the brain turns off. It's eerie. Yeah. If you watch it happen, you watch the brain just shut down and nothing you say gets past this endlessly reiterating little narrative in the head saying, progress uber ales, we're going to the stars. It's really spooky. He had a nose job at one point as well. Not that I'm paying that much attention. Shkreli? Yeah. I don't imagine that helped. <laughs> but he's got, but it, all his look, he's got a smirk on almost every every. Exactly. No, no. He's he he he's a, the smirk owns him. <laughs> That's one of the things about these rigid patterns, these rigid narrative patterns that people get stuck in. They don't own the narrative. The art, the narrative owns them. They can't think anything that it doesn't let them think. And that's something you can see over and over again if you watch people getting stuck in one or another fixed narrative. They can't think outside that narrative. Mm. They literally can't. You know, the Ro- again, the, the Roman convinced that the empire always always triumphs. That's his narrative. I'm sure they. I'm sure his, the, the, the Roman guys they set in a spark at that moment. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think what the internet's done as well is, is, and we've talked about this a little bit, is, is whatever uh-huh. your, your worldview or your world belief system is, you can use the internet to reinforce that, as opposed to mm-hmm. bringing, as opposed to bringing people to a common ground of truth in mm-hmm. the middle. It's really yeah. just polarizing people to to just reinforce yeah. their current belief system. Yeah. So this is in fact one way that the internet disconnects people. Yeah. 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 By just feeding them what they already want to hear. Yeah, exactly. They can they can exactly. ignore all the rest of the evidence that, that that'll change their view and just uh, look at the evidence. Just focus. Yeah. yeah, and and it can be the it can be the most egregious crap. Um, I was reading I was reading somebody the other day who was insisting that um, global warming isn't happening, and when you know when um, Amundsen landed to to. Do, landed on the shores of Antarctica to do his um, trip to his first trip ever to the South Pole. There were trees growing all over the shore. Okay, Amundsen left photographs, lots of them. There are no trees. Try telling this guy that. <laughs> yeah. It won't get through the smirk. No. Huh. <laughs> yeah. It, so I, 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 I sometimes think you know the when 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 the when the. You know, a thousand years from now, when people, when somebody writes the history of what happened to industrial society, they're going to say one of the major parts of it was the internet, because people were so disconnected from the real world. They're staring into the glass screens, getting this endless feedback loop of the same stuff they already wanted to hear. That they literally, they, as far as we can tell, they didn't even notice there was a real world anymore until the power finally went out, and then they all died. <laughs> yeah, I. I... I don't know. I've had a. I've tried to have a positive outlook on that in the past. Like that, that people are looking into their screens because they want to connect with other people. But you're, mm-hmm. you're probably, you're probably onto something that is a little deeper than that. It, but yeah, it's, 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 and this, and this is another of the reasons why I encourage people. You know, find the old data. 
find the data that doesn't share the prejudices of the of the present moment. What about more of uh, what about more of the Druidry practice? You talked a little bit about sure. about training your you know your your narrative basically retraining your narrative. What what else would you do if you were a Druid? What are some of the things that uh, you would you would be practicing? Well, it depends very much on on which Druid group. It's a, it's a very diverse tradition. Okay. Um, and one thing that basically all the Druid groups I know of, one thing they have in common is meditation. Okay. And and meditation is simply the act of stepping back from your narrative. Yeah. There are many different ways of doing it, but all of them, basically, you're not just letting yourself get lost in your own thoughts. Yeah. You may be stepping back and looking at them. You may be silencing them. You may be choosing a particular pattern of thought and working with it and taking it step by step. There are various ways to do it, but in all cases, you're not letting your, your, your mind get drowned in your thoughts. And you're also developing an inner life, a mental life of your own that's separate from the media, separate from what everyone else is chattering at you and so on. So meditation is crucial. Um, the, in, in AODA, the, the order that I, that I used to add, um, we, we kind of divide the three, um, the three aspects of the training into what we call the earth path, the sun path, and the moon path. And you do all three of these, okay? Mm -hmm. The earth path is, um, changing your life so that you place less of a burden on the planet. Mm -hmm. Okay. The sun path is celebrating the seasons. That's the Druids have these seasonal festivals that so we, we celebrate. Different Druid group, groups do different sets of them, whether four or eight or what have you. Like and then the moon path. Yeah, exactly. The solstices, the equinoxes, this kind of thing. Yeah. And so there, there are rituals for those, and that's just kind of being part of the cycles of nature. And then there's the moon path, which is meditation. And those three things, as, as, as we see it, again, you know, ask three Druids, get four answers. Um, as we see it, that's kind of, that's kind of the basis of our style of druid, or the place where you know you do these things and everything unfolds from it, and the, what else you do is very much up to you. What what about like magic and the occult type stuff? Now that's that's something. The order that I that I'm now the, that I retired into, um, the druidical order, the Golden Dawn, is more of that. Now right. people people you say magic, you say the occult, and everybody immediately starts thinking of devil worship or lots of hot sex or both. Um, or, you know, th there's various silly things that people that people do with that whole with that phrase. Um, Dion Fortune, who was one of the most important medical theorists of the 20th century, defined magic as the art and science of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. Uh, I like that. Okay. Yeah, and that's what what you're doing with all the funky hardware. You know the colored robes and the incense and the, you know the wands and the and the daggers and the and the bellowing words and the strange gestures. You're using external things to shape your consciousness and to change your consciousness. And while there are, you know, depending on your your preferred theory of magic, there are various ways to understand how this works. One of the basic aspects is that, again, it's that narrative thing. You, we have all met people like this who keep on getting in the same bad relationship with different people over and over and over again, or they can't get in a relationship at all. Yeah. Okay. No matter what. Usually what happens is their narrative playing in their head. They're stuck in a mental rut. Um, the person who keeps getting in a bad relationship, what he or she is attracted to is the kind of person who, who maltreats them in whatever way it is. Okay, you know, you find somebody who always ends up with an abusive partner. That's because there's something in this, there, there, there's a, you know, I'm an abuser signal going off there, and that's what triggers the attraction thing. How do you fix that? You know, 
you've got to rewire the you've got to rewire the programming. If I can, you know, mix a metaphor here a bit, you have to change the narrative. You can you can't do that consciously because the narrative isn't conscious. It's playing itself down in the deep places of the mind. So you have to use the language of dreams. You have to use symbol. Mm. You have to use, you know, the symbolism. You have to use things that don't the, the non-rational. Um, because that's how the lower, that's how the deep parts of the mind work. Hmm. And magic is really good at that. So what, what about core belief systems like the afterlife or, or um, uh, um, consciousness sort of being separate from the body, like the ability to astral travel or, or this type of stuff? No. Be, no. Okay. Their core belief systems, um, Druidry is not much into belief systems. Um, everyone has beliefs. Most people take them far too seriously. Let we we I, I I would say that we st- that in Druid we start from the presupposition that human beings aren't that bright, so that trying to lay down the law about what the cosmos is like and how we relate to it is perhaps something we should leave until we're smarter than we are now. Right. Okay. So now astral travel. What, let's step back from that label and say people very often under certain circumstances have the experience of standing outside their bodies. It's not actually that hard to do. There are certain exercises that will reliably generate it in about half the population. And, you know, you're standing there, you're looking at your physical body sprawled on the bed going, holy crap, what, what have I just done? It is a very astonishing experience. What does that mean? There are various theories. Um, people can have that experience. It is, a very, it is a very interesting thing to do. But... <clears throat> Magic, in particular, is not an ideology. It's an, you know, it's an art and a science. It's not about believing things. It's about practicing things. And you can do it from within almost any belief system you care to name. Um, just if I may, if I may rattle a few cages among our listeners, <laughs> there's a there are a lot of very devout Christian mages, people who are Christians who practice magic. There have been since the beginning of Christianity. I know the official churches say, no, 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 you can't do that. But that's probably, you know, that's their problem, really. There have been a lot of them. There, will, there have always been a lot of them. Doubtless, there will always be a lot of them. Um, there are people who practice magic who, you know, who don't, who are effectively atheists. I'm not one of them, but that's fine. Um, you know, there are people who practice magic from any kind of belief system you want to, just as there are people who practice engineering, who are atheists and Christians and pagans and all kinds of stuff. Magic is a lot more like engineering than it is like a religion. What about the what about the Drew? Not so much the the magic part of it, but what about the druids and reincarnation and stuff like that? Like it always seems to I mean, me like it's more sort of earthy and pagan, and not so the like sort of new agey. Well, <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> In in the occult scene, a lot of people insist that the word, the phrase "new new age" should be pronounced to rhyme with sewage. Um, there's not there's not a lot of tolerance for the, the new age. What, what happens every every, every so often, like usually about twice a century, you get one of these situations where a set of ideas gets pulled out of its context in some brand of occult philosophy and elaborated and complexified and turned into the big pop belief system. Like the law of attraction? Like, that is such crap. But that would be the, one of those examples, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, very much so. Because that's kind of what magic attra- is in a way, I mean. Well, except it isn't. 
um, the law of attraction is actually what, what happens. Some of the old schools, some of the old occult schools used to give that to people at the beginning exercise. Right. And they'd find out, you, you need actually, you know, on, in a certain number of situations, if you convince yourself that X is going to happen, X will happen. Because, you know, maybe you're standing in the way of preventing it to happen or your lack of activity, yeah. lack of doing yeah. something. And yeah. there are other ways that it doesn't work at all. And so what would happen is you'd give people this, this exercise and they'd go do it for a month and they'd come back, you know, to the next, to the, the next class session going, I, I, I don't understand. I mean, the most amazing thing happened, you know, I, 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 I fell in love with this great person and I got a raise at job, but I kept on trying to manifest a Mercedes-Benz in my carport and it did not happen. What's going on? And then the teacher sits down and says, okay, now that I have your attention, let's talk. But the law of attraction people never got to that now we have your attention moment. Mm. So they never, so, so you ended up with all of these people serenely convinced that the universe is a vending machine and all they have to do is push the button and whatever they want drops out of it. I was living in Southern Oregon at the time when this oh, was yeah. big. Yeah. yeah. And in particular in a town that was infested by New Age yuppies. And the number of people who bailed into the law of attraction big time, they were reading about the secret, they were, and they were all going to make millions of dollars in real estate using this technique. Do you, do you really think it's that pervasive into the materialistic part of it? Um, certainly what I saw was incredibly right. materialistic. Because, I mean, I've, I've, you know, I'm sort of a little new agey myself, really, and I, yeah. there's people in new age. I uh, do. Darren, you should have said if it. Darren's already adopted that term, but yeah. If you approach it in a spiritual fashion, if you approach it from the point of view of mind and not of matter, it will actually work much better. And that's one of the things that you'll hear if you get to that class session where they say, "Okay, now that I have your attention, let's talk about what's actually going on here." Mm -hmm. But you know, American culture, especially being what it is, people took it to the most grossly crassly materialistic level and they were going to get rich from real estate. I don't think the bankruptcy courts have yet finished working through the bank log, the backlog. Mm. It was a complete disaster, of course, because in fact, a lot of what made the housing bubble that popped in 2008, 2009 down here, as disastrous as it was, was that so many people bailed into it using the secret as their, you know, their, their um, game right, plan. Right, right. And it failed. And it failed, but, you know, um, magic does not, mag when you're dealing with matter, okay, the laws of material physics govern. You have to work with them. They yeah, but what about, yeah, but consciousness is, is not really, doesn't it sort of no, but, supersede no, but you, you that? Know, Sure, but no. The thing is, if you're if you're working with consciousness, then you you're working with different laws. Right. If you if you if the thing you're trying to do with the, you know with the law of attraction is attract somebody you know into your life uh, you know as a long term love relationship, that's something you can do by changing yourself. Okay, that's a, that you can do amazing things with that. that I, let me let me pass on the ultimate love spell. Okay, there is a, there is a very effective love spell. In fact, it's universally effective. If you Alcohol. do it, it will work. No, seriously. It's real simple. Make yourself more lovable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it never fails. But everybody, nobody wants to do that. Yeah, no, that's a People very want to say, no, no, I want to be, I want to remain just exactly the callous jerk that I am. And yeah. I still want, you know, babes falling all over me. Sorry, guy. <laughs> no, you, if you want to be loved, make yourself lovable. 
And that, of course, requires facing the parts of yourself that are not lovable, but that's part of what magic is there for. Um, So in the same way, um, in anything that has to do with the mind side of things, with the emotional side of things, with with consciousness and and its manifestations, you've got a lot more flexibility there. And to the extent that the New Age... Back in the day, you know, and even now to some extent, to the extent the New Age remembered that, remembered that it's not about, you know, getting babes in a Mercedes. It can accomplish a lot, but so many people, you know, things may be better up, up, up in Canada, but in the United States, so many people who got in the New Age, it was immediately, I want, you know, I'm going to order the Cosmos to give me a Mercedes Benz and 20 million bucks and babes. <laughs> and, and of course, it didn't work. The universe, that, that's not, the, we, we know from experimental evidence that is not the way the universe works. And if you go up, if you treat the universe that way, you will be kicked in the backside. So, so you've, uh, you've moved into this other uh, order, the, the Golden Dawn one. Is there, in, yeah. in general, I mean, even, even through your last order that you were at, uh, there was growth, mm-hmm. there was quite a bit of growth in there. Are you finding a resurgence in the whole interest in this, uh, this stuff? thing because um, there has been a there has been quite a boom in pagan religions mm-hmm. and you know going on since about 1980 and now the the AODA the order of Druids in America the order that I used to head actually I, I ended up taking it over and getting getting asked to take it over at a time when it was almost extinct. There were we when I joined, I was the eleventh member. Right. Um, it had been around since 1912. It had its ups and downs, but wow. it was it was in fairly bad shape. And so I flung, I you know, I said, hey, why not? Let's give it a shot. And I flung myself into it, and has nearly a thousand members now. So it's doing tolerably well. Mm-hmm. Um, some other organ, not all other organizations are doing the same thing. Partly it was you know, what AODA has to offer is rather interesting. Partly. It's very relevant to the environmental crisis of our time, as some other traditions aren't so. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, I, I'm not sure what, what all it was. But there, at any given time, I, I really think there's a certain number of people who are, and it's not the same number of people, who are seriously interested in, in, in magic, in the art and science of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. And it doesn't go up and down, but what changes is how many people are interested in the popular end of it. Mm-hmm. And that soars up and it sinks down, and it soars up and it sinks down. We've been through various cycles. But, you know, um, it has been something that has been of great interest to me since I was a teenager. Um, it has been, you know, it's a, <laughs> in a very real sense that it's my life. And... I expect to be involved in it in one way or another until they carry me out feet first. Yeah, yeah. Is it, is I'll, there... probably, I'll, I'll probably, I'll probably have a have a wand clutched in my hand, missing <laughs> <laughs> my cold hand as they haul me away. Is there more interest in it in some parts of the world, like like the UK and the States? Uh, is obviously probably fairly popular, I guess. What about other areas in Europe? And... It, it it varies. I mean, it it, it really does. Um, Europe things are fairly. It, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of interest in druidry there. There's a lot of interest in, in other kinds of esoteric traditions and so on. Um, Japan is a hotbed of this stuff always has been. Um, although they have their own traditions and they're also interested in the Western stuff as well. Um, it just it's you know it's there's this kind of continuing low boil of people who are interested in this stuff because it, once you start poking through, poking at 
what's going on in the world, what's going on in your life, you start noticing that you know the effect of these narratives and the way that you should that you shape your own reality, the way you, the reality you perceive, and so on. And from there, it doesn't take long before you start going, hold it, is there a way to, to work with this? Is there a way to fix some of the obvious problems here? Yeah, yeah. And away you go. Yeah. Huh. So, so a part of your practice then is to be a master gardener or whatever as well, right? Like you've, you've actually, is that part of the, the like one of the, like the earth path or? Like it, certainly can. it certainly can be. Um, some, for some people, that's appropriate. For some people, it's not. I learned to garden. Um, actually, this back in the back in the early 1980s, I was living in a commune. Mm. They, you know, doing digging organic, double dug organic vegetable beds, and you know, taking care of goats and things. Huh. You have fun. a goat now? No, you live in the no, I don't. No, I don't. No, I live in town. Um, have I, you considered have like? A, have you considered moving to an acreage or something like that? Nope. Nope. I'm, um, I'm, I'm a city boy, which means I like a backyard garden, <laughs> but I like to be within walking distance of a li- of, of the public library and things like this. Um, yeah, no, I think I can we, my wife and I considered that at one point. We just weighed that against the different options. And now, you know, we leave the goat, the goat tending to those who are drawn to tend to those. And, you know, we'll buy goat cheese from them. Yeah, I suppose that's, so, you know, uh... Everybody, everybody can contribute one way or the other. Um, I Where does that put us podcasters? Well, you know, <laughs> eventually you're probably going to have to come up with some way to monetize it. You know, I don't know what what will happen. Eventually, you know, as the internet winds down, you may find yourself with a with a, an award winning radio show or something. Um, <laughs> will radio still be around though? I guess radio, <laughs> yeah, radio doesn't take radio, a lot of power. Radio, not only that, it takes you can do it with very simple technology. Um, something that many of your your listeners might be interested in, talk to your local amateur radio club. If you're at all interested in electronics, you find you find these old these old guys, you know, old hair-eared engineers. And this, this typically happens. You hear about this in the case of a disaster. Okay, a tornado goes through, or the hurricane wipes out 15 towns, or what have you. And some, you know, 62-year-old guy. Um, Digs, digs himself out of the rubble, finds a bo- finds his box of of spare scrap parts, um, strings a wire, and pretty soon is talking to people all over the world, you know, on on an old using an old car battery and a handmade radio. Um, radio is a really simple technology. It's probably one that can be preserved into the into the far future. And there are a lot. And in the amateur radio scene, people work with this stuff and they have fun with it all the time. It is, you know, if you're into the whole maker maker space business, if you like to hack technology, it's a lot of fun. Mm. The ham and the, and they will be around the like when when the EMP comes and they're. Uh... Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. No, it's, yeah, I know. I I'm not I'm not sure of the details of the of how long the, the, the excuse me? how long's a fucking aircraft carrier or something like that good for? I'll just take one of them and go on a cruise <laughs> cruise off into the sunset. It just just. Don't get too close to the territorial waters of China when you're sailing that aircraft carrier. Aircraft carriers are obsolete. I'll paint it. <laughs> oh no! Paint it, paint it bright yellow, and, and yeah. use it. And, and lay, there you go. Paint it, paint it bright yellow, and lay out sun chairs on the deck and yeah. invite people over. To, yeah, there exactly. we go. Exactly, we're cool. That, that 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 would be a lot more fun. Perfect. Well, I guess we'll see what happens if fusion comes up. I'm going to have to call you. 
If if fusion ever comes, if they ever no no. <laughs> Please no. This does not mean we've had a marvelous new breakthrough, and fusion is only twenty years in the future. This means an actual commercial plant, you know, putting out electricity into into the Calgary grid. Okay, okay. <laughs> if that ever happens, you definitely call me. <laughs> Perfect. Because the thing is, the fusion industry is great at coming up with breakthroughs, breakthroughs that mean that fusion is only 20 years in the future. They do it all the time. That's how they keep the funding coming in. Yeah, even still, even to this day. Oh, yeah, the, the, the whole IT, the ITER, the big Euro- European fusion reactor project, which is billions of, year, billions of dollars, well, billions of years, not quite, billions of dollars over budget, year, years behind schedule. It will probably never even be completed. Who cares? Everybody involved is getting a fat salary. <laughs> It's real, you know. It's a nice gig if you can get it. True that. We got to get on the government tit somehow. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you can start spreading yeah, global warming propaganda. Yeah, you have to look yourself in the face. That's true. And fuck that. I'll just get rid of my mirrors. <laughs> there you I'll go. just look at my phone. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, are, are you sure you're on the northern side of the boundary? That's more of a U.S. attitude. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So is there anything else that you think, uh, before we start wrapping up, that you think that we should cover no, think, or that you, you want to talk about? I think, we've covered, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, we have. It's been a great chat. I mean, it's... it's I, I've enjoyed it. I really appreciate uh, your, your attention to the questions and actually answering in a, in a real open, oh. honest way. <clears throat> you know, a lot of... A lot of times we yeah. have authors on here, and and you know they've got their sort of shtick, and and it's good to, uh-huh. it's good that you kind of you know you even though you've had a lot of these questions before, but you you seem to be very um very open and articulate to to what we're talking well, about. Well, the, the the problem the problem with having a shtick is that you run out of things to say, and I mean and I've seen this happen to writers where they'll write the same book five or six times, and then of course they don't have anything else to write because they're just just stuck in a single shtick. I really enjoy conversations like this because people are constantly coming up with um, angles on things or even entirely different questions that I haven't thought of before. Yeah. And so it you know, keeps my mind working. Yeah, that's great. And it means that I'll have something else to write. <laughs> Absolutely. And when you write that, we'll have to have you back on the show. And there we go, yeah. I would, I, would, I would be very pleased. That's yeah, a date. Well, thanks a lot, John. Yeah, absolutely. Where can our listeners track you down? Are you on Twitter and uh, no, Facebook I, or anything I, like that? I, I, don't, I don't do a lot of social media. The best thing to do is my blog, The Arch Druid Report, which is um, HTTP, uh, golden slash slash, thearchdruidreport.blogspot.com. And then I also, that's once, that's, uh, once a week. Um, Wednesday nights is when I usually put up the posts. And then I also have a once a month blog that's more specialized that's specifically on magic and spirituality, which is the Well of Galabes. And it's Galabes, G A L A B E S dot blogspot dot com. I was wondering how you pronounce that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'll, pu- I'll uh, put all the, those links in the show notes as well for people to There we go. Yeah. That. Um yeah, the original the original well um according to the old legends when Merlin wasn't hanging out at Arthur's court, he went he had this, you know, place to hang out by by this this well or spring or fountain called Galavis and that's where he went when he was just desperately tired of dealing with, you know, knights going, "Merlin, can you help me out here?" Is that is that an actual well still somewhere? Um, actually, the, a guy a guy named Nikolai Tolstoy, who's a descendant of the famous writer, um, found some years ago what he thinks is the actual well up most of the way up a mountain in Scotland. Oh wow! Okay, so yeah, cold, I want to go there sometime. Yeah. <laughs> Did Druids eat mushrooms? <laughs> um, 
I have them in spaghetti sauce all the time. <laughs> oh, come on. Oh, you were talking about that kind of mushroom, were you? <laughs> I don't. But I'm I'm sure there are druids there are, there are druids who do. I mean ask three druids, get four answers. <laughs> I like that. Perfect. <laughs> I need mean, that for Indians. Dogma dogma is just not our thing. Right on. No, that's great. Well, thanks a lot, John. Well, thank you very much for having me on. All right, buddy. Take care. Right. Yeah. Bye. So, what'd you think? Yeah, it was it was a great chat. Yeah, I tell you, standoffish like, on the UFO stuff. Right? Yeah, it's okay, man. That's <laughs> yeah. all good. Whatever he wants to believe. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, it was great that he answered like a lot of our questions very, uh, very thoughtfully. Yeah, right? He wasn't articulate. just brushing over stuff. Like yeah. you know, sometimes you get people like you ask a question, they kind of veer back to like that path that they're always talking about. But uh, yeah, it was good. I want to thank thank Jason for emailing in those questions and stuff and getting getting us to get John on. It was, it was pretty intriguing stuff after listening to that audiobook and listening to some of his blogs. It really gets you thinking about the peak oil thing because I was kind of thinking, oh, well, maybe peak oil doesn't matter. It's abiotic. What if it's abiotic and it's just, you know, never ending, but... Comes out too slow. It's ever... It's just, just going to... We're going to run out at some point. But I am a bit resentful to being put in a situation where we're going to run out of resources. So uh, what are we going to do about it? What'd you we're say? not, just the rest of the world is. What do you mean we're not we're in Canada? Or? Well, we got good neighbors. <laughs> Depends how you look at it, I suppose. But I mean, if there's any oil, the States is just going to go get it. What? What do you mean? I think like go get it, like go take it? Just yeah, take when it? it comes to it, I think so, straight up. Boom, so fucking I, level the place and then go take the oil with and radiation suits. And then we're just up north, so they, they'll just they can't give bomb some us. of it to us. We'll we'll just take be, it from somebody we'll else and give assimilate. it to us. We'll assimilate. Yeah, I don't know. Assimilate or die. That's how I see the future. Assimilate or die? Yeah. Really? It depends on what comes first. If they first take over the world for the oil or start rat- taking people out for their oil, or if they need our water. And what happens when the oil runs out? That's what I'm getting at. That's a long, long time away. Because by then the population would be cut down by fucking 90%. How? Nukes, baby. (laughs) 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 I didn't say it was a bright future. But a few hundred years away. So I wouldn't worry about it too much. Probably going to get crazier a lifetime, you think? I don't know. I have a hard time believing it. Yeah, I know what you mean. There's not enough of... uh, Yeah, I just... uh, There's too much down there still? Like, we're not not past the halfway point? Is that what you're saying? That that peak oil hasn't come yet? I just don't... I think even if it has, it's still going to be such a slow curve that... Like he was talking about, where there's no tipping point, it just, you don't notice it, it's just a... It's like a frog boiling in... Yeah, like maybe in 50 years, oil price... Gas will be expensive. Like road warrior style? Two or three times what it is now, but you'll just budget around it. But who knows? I don't know. I still... I'm still not ready to say that better forms energy or it's not... you know, I still think that's, that's where I'm it. At. Yeah, I'm. I still believe that there could be some free energy that's been suppressed. And like he talked about 
physics, but what about quantum physics? Like, you know, there's, there's, you know, you start looking at Nassim Harriman's work and Plus all that. Plus it doesn't have to be absolutely free. It just has to be a lot better. Yeah. Anyway. To each his own, I suppose. Plus it's fucking military flying around in UFOs. Haven't you seen the latest X-Files? <laughs> I have not. I fell asleep. I don't mean the latest oh. show. I mean the latest series. Like the first episode. Inflatable black triangles. <laughs> I like that theory, though. Could be could be so. a good one for some of them. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, big thanks to John Michael for coming on the show. John Michael Greer. Big thanks to Alex uh, for setting that up for us, buddy. Uh, Alex. Sakaris. That's oh, so I got the right. contact info from. Right. Uh, maybe I should have said that, but whatever. John didn't seem to mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> check out grammerica.ca slash support. Help us keep the lights on. Help us keep staying keep ad free. Staying ad free. No portals or nothing. Keeping the heat on. Mind your oil's getting cheap. Economy's tanking. <laughs> we stand resilient. Check out grammerica.ca slash support. Bunch of different options there. Um, spam gram. We have some t-shirts for a $25 donation. Yeah, and magnets. Yeah. Fucking magnets everywhere. Fridge magnets and car magnets. Is there still still a Knight Rider? What Knight Rider? What do you mean? That's what I call your car. No, I took it off. Did you? Yeah. How come? Self-conscious? No, I just don't want to flaunt it at work and stuff. That's the work thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's the work thing. That's like Lisa's like, why don't you throw it on your truck? She's like, throw a shoot Sasquatch in your truck. I was like, yeah, I don't want to mix those worlds. No, not right now anyways. Maybe one day. There's a couple on the car though. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I'll do it on the weekends. Just not every day at work. <laughs> so they do stick to the car just fine. Yeah. Uh, they stick to the fridge. There's six inches by four inches. There's take the shot, save Sasquatch, and classic Grimerica. And what are they going to do? All the new subscribers will get one and donations of $5 or more. Bingo, bango. Right on. Boom, shakalaka. All right. So, yeah, thanks, buddy. Oh, Spam Gram, too. Did we say that? G-R-A-H-A-M at grammerica.com. That's quick on the jingle, but hey. Sign up for the newsletter, grammerica.ca slash news, if you haven't already. Uh... It's less, and I know fucking most of you haven't, because I know how many people signed up for the newsletter, and I know about how many people download the show, and it's seriously, like, yeah, it's less fraction. than 5%. Yeah. So, you guys can do better, sign up for the newsletter, and um, sign your friends up for the newsletter. If you already signed up, just start signing people up, go through your work email address, sign up. They <laughs> won't even know, it's anonymous. They don't know who signed them up for the show, so you're not, like, putting yourself out there. And they can just unsubscribe if they want, we think. (laughs) (laughs) We're trusting our volunteer web person. (laughs) Um, Thanks, Wayne. (laughs) No, it's Justin. No, but for the... Newsletter? I thought it was a web thing. Yeah, because you sign up through the web. No, the newsletter is also an entity. Okay, both of them. Wayne and Justin. Okay. Absolutely. Thanks to both of them. Um, so yeah, do that. Review the show. Grabamerica.ca slash iTunes on iOS. 
uh, Mac, if you're listening on iTunes. Uh, if you're on Android, I don't know where you review it. Stitcher, I suppose. Even if you don't listen there, you can go review us there. I think that's about it. Right on. Thanks, buddy. All right, guys. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. That's right. It starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, an airplane, team of shopping, not afraid. I have a hurricane. Listen to yourself. Sure. World starts its own heat. I'm sure your own heat. Speed up all speed. Run. No strength. The ladder starts. Ladder with fear. Fight down. Hot wire. And the fire representing seven games. Government for hire. The combat side. Left the west coming in. Hurry. You're seeing down your net. Team by quarter. Battle trump dead. Look at that low lane. Five. Then overflow. Population. Time to move. Don't take yourself seriously. World starts its own heat. Listen to you. Hardly. Dummy with the ratchet and the river and the right. Right. They try to figure out a standby. Right. Right. Feeling pretty psyched. It's the end of the world as we know it. I know it. You know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. As we knew it. It's the end of the world as we know it. Now I feel fine. Waterboarding is misnamed. It should be called the drowning torture. Six o'clock. Give me hard. Don't get off. Twin towers. Action. Burn. Return. Listen to yourself. Locking out uniform. Burn. Burning with battles. Everybody escalate. Automate. Incinerate. Right again. Right match. Stand up. Stand down. Watch your back. Blood crush. Uh-oh. That means no fear. Cavalier. Renegades. They're clear. Tournament. 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 Lines. Offer me solutions. Offer me alternatives. And I decline. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. I just gotta know how I feel. It's time I had some time alone. I feel the same way. It's time I had some time alone. I drive up here. We're getting there. We're getting there. Hands up. Who wants to walk around thinking there's a war about to hit us? I mean, that is a terrible system. I believe the majority of people want to live in a peaceful world. That's what I believe. Because otherwise, we're looking at the potential of this kind of world. A world in which modern governments get toppled by people willing to murder the innocent. And if that were to occur, look back at this day and age and say, what happened to those people in 2007? How come they couldn't see the threat to a future generation of people? And look, I understand here in Washington, some people say we're not at war. I know that. They're just wrong, in my opinion. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Ah, this is not the end. Uh, it is not even the beginning of the end. Uh, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning.